This is Jocko Podcast number 133 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. And this podcast will cover a horrific subject of history, and it is not for children or the faint of heart. So, listener discretion is advised. I am a war criminal. I served in Manchuko, that phony country created by Japan. In 1992, a group of us went to China to apologize to the family members of the people we had sent to Unit 731. One woman, now about 60, was the grandchild of one of the victims. She told us our grandfather was killed by Unit 731 in experiments. He was killed because the Ken Pitai sent him. If you hadn't sent him, he would have lived. You are killers just like those doctors. We prostrated ourselves in apology, and she kept pressing the fact home that we were partners in crime, as guilty as the doctors of Unit 731. And it's true. It is just as she said. Apologizing does not erase the crime. We were the aggressors. Most of the Japanese participants in the war were aggressors. Orders came from above, orders from the emperor. And people were killed because it couldn't be helped. According to international convention, those who kill in combat are not criminals. The 3,000 people killed by Unit 731 were all sent there by the Kenpatai or the police. The American Navy was attacked at Pearl Harbor, and the Japanese thought it was a victorious strike. Yet within two years, America had built up its naval strength again. America is a machine society. But bacteriological warfare does not rely on machines. So Ishii's idea was to kill the attacking Russians with disease. Once killed, troops are not rebuilt like machinery. The Japanese army promised Chinese children money for bringing in rats, but later gave them a pencil for every rat. The end purpose of all this effort was war. In war, the side who kills more people wins. Bacteria can kill on a large scale, so Ishii pressed this forward. And that is testimony from a Kentipai officer, which was kind of like a secret police that served in Japan leading up to and during World War II. 
and this is a part of history that I don't really want to talk about no one does but of course to ignore it to think that if we pretend it didn't happen that only opens up the door for it to happen again so this is the story of unit 731 an arm of the Japanese Imperial Army that along with some other associated units they developed tested and employed chemical and biological warfare weapons and there's two books that I reviewed and will be referring to during this podcast one is unit 731 by Pete Williams and David Wallace and the other is unit 731 testimony by Hal Gold and the history and the acts that are accounted for in these books really show what man is capable of especially under malevolent leadership and in this case the leader that is primarily culpable for the crimes of unit 731 is the individual referred to in that opening statement a guy named by the name of Ishii Shiro Ishii who was born June 25th 1892 the fourth son in a wealthy land-owning family he was a smart apparently very smart individual he was a big tall kind of strapping guy and by most accounts he was a pretty arrogant individual as well and he went to school to become a doctor and join the army and there he studied bacteriology and serology which is the the study of blood and pathogens in the blood and he was also a fiercely patriotic and nationalistic individual and what that meant in Japan at this time was a feeling of total superiority both a cultural superiority and a racial superiority cultural and racial superiority superiority over the rest of Asia and really over the rest of the world and he moved up through the ranks fairly quickly and he had done some traveling and of course saw what things that happened in World War one and he saw chemical and biological warfare as a way to win wars and obviously Japan is a island nation with limited resources and so you need some advantage and he thought the advantage that Japan could get was chemical and biological warfare and in order to really maximize that advantage he believed that these weapons needed to be tested on people he believed that human experimentation was the pathway to move ahead of the rest of the world technologically in these departments and oddly enough he gained a decent amount of clout and prestige by 
inventing a water filtration system that could provide clean water to soldiers on the front line which was a really big deal and and the book the book testimony the unit 731 testimony goes into pretty good detail about the number of people that were killed in in wars back then and how many of them would die of diseases and and malnutrition from being sick from the water having diseases and, and whatnot and so he developed this this filtration system that worked really well and he ended up actually taking advantage of that a little too much and he used that technology which he had come up with to get some kickback payments from a commercial company that manufactured the filters and that kind of got him in some trouble but that trouble was overcome because he had some political connections that he had gained and he kind of got back on path and continued to gain rank and and gain stature and with that rank and that stature that he gained he convinced his leadership to allow him to begin a highly secret program where he would make and test the biological and chemical weapons and again at this time chemical and biological weapons were very politically sensitive so this is in the mid 1930s the end of World War one had had only occurred just prior to this really 20 years and people remembered those those wars that war and they remembered the horrors of those weapons and and that's why international law had forbidden these weapons but Ishii didn't care Ishii was there to win at any cost and because of the view of the chemical and biological weapons at this time and the political sensitivity around them he couldn't do what he wanted to do inside of Japan because these weapons are dangerous first of all but again the political sensitivities around them that was okay because he had other plans and he opened his first laboratory in Manchuria an area of China that was at this time under the brutal control of Imperial Japan and the first laboratory that he put together was outside of a city called Harbin and interestingly the unit maintained a level of cover meaning their their purpose wasn't made known to the world the people they advertised the unit that they put in Manchuria that it was all about water purification and they and they actually did water purification there so it was a good cover story but what was really being focused on underneath that cover was the creation of biological and chemical weapons that they could use for war and as Ishii made progression the project expanded and now I'm going to go to the book Unit 731 by Peter Williams and David Wallace. Here we go. In a few short years, Ishii's project had hurtled from relative obscurity to one of top secret and national importance. It took two years to construct the establishment's 150 or so buildings, which included accommodation for thousands of people, a railway siding, an incinerator and powerhouse with tall cooling towers, an animal house, an airfield 
a large administration building, an exercise yard, and a strange forbidding square-shaped building known as Roblox. R-O. The Japanese character Ro is square in shape, hence the name of the building. Although Roblox looked square from the outside, hidden from view in the center were two other buildings known as Blocks 7 and 8. Roblox was the center of bacteria production and disease research. Block 7 and 8 had a more sinister purpose. Unit 731's Bacteriological Research Division was divided into more than a dozen squads, each investigating the warfare possibility of a wide variety of diseases, plague, anthrax, dysentery, typhoid, paratyphoid, cholera, and many other exotic and unknown diseases were studied. Every conceivable facility was given to Unit 731. So I think that's important because they, they were getting a lot of money. This wasn't like a little rogue project that wasn't being supported. As a matter of fact, here, so too were luxuries lavished on the lifestyle of Ishii's researchers and workers. In the remote Manchurian plain at Ping Fan, a whole biological township grew up. It was known as Togo Village. So around this Unit 731, there's a whole village that got created, and they were all living the good life. By the way, while Japan is not living, the rest of Japan is, you know, out getting ready to go to war or at war in various parts of the world and living lean, here they're living large. Back to the book. Togo villagers had plentiful supplies of the best foods at times when people in Tokyo were starving. Ping Fan was centrally heated against the bitter sub zero temperatures of the Manchurian winter. Naturally, it had the best sanitation, including even Western style, style lavatories. So he took care of his people, and his people and he were getting taken care of. Building a bacterial weapon, Ishii found out, was not an easy task. He and his researchers faced a myriad of problems. What kind of microorganisms would make an effective biological warfare agent? Should it have a lethal or incapacitating effect? Could it be produced in quantities sufficient for wartime employment? Could these living organisms be kept alive through storage and shipment to their ultimate employment on the battlefield? What type of munition would be needed to deliver the agent to the target? What were the technical and military characteristics of such a weapon? So he started from ground zero, trying to figure all this out. Ishii approached the problem by looking for weapons that could be delivered from altitude by aircraft causing massive outbreaks of epidemics. Ever since his trip to Europe, plague had fascinated Ishii, and I talked about his travel, and this is, they're talking a little bit about that here. He knew it would make a deadly weapon if it could be harnessed. It is highly infectious with an incubation period of three to four days, sometimes up to a week. The onset is abrupt with chills high fever, and extreme weakness. The eyes redden, the face becomes congested, and the tongue coated. Victims can become maniacally delirious, and death may be rapid, sometimes within one day. Compared with some bacterial pathogens, plague is only moderately infectious, but more virulent strains can be cultivated. Plague could create casualties, often out of all proportion to the number of bacteria disseminated. 
Ishii deduced, therefore, that it would make an efficient weapon set about preparing the most dangerous strains. And at some point on this podcast, we'll talk about the Black Plague, which is an epidemic that was insane in Europe. But when you, when you, when you have any knowledge about the Black Plague and you read about someone that's looking at it saying, hey, this looks like a good idea, you realize that this is just a sick, sadistic person. Plague had another advantage for Ishii. Its origins could be concealed. Science had not then provided a satisfactory answer to the age-old question of why, where, for how long, and how badly a plague epidemic broke out. So he, he just thought, yeah, this is great, we can cover it up. A plague hits our enemy and we, we, you know, we don't know where it came from. So they are producing this they begin to produce this. So large was the production plant that in the heyday of Unit 731, it had the potential for creating sufficient bacteria to kill the world's population several times over. Now that Ishii could produce plague and other virulent bacteria in sufficient quantities for warfare, his next task was to discover how he could deliver his deadly microbes to the enemy. And obviously I'm not reading this entire book and and there's more detail about the process of getting to breed these bacteria once they figure out how to breed it and now we got to figure out how to deliver it how are we going to attack the enemy with this he tries all kinds of different things and then finally back to the book his eye had come to rest upon the humble flea as in nature, so too in war, this minute insect could be relied upon as the carrier of pestilence. To yield vast quantities of fleas and feed them, enormous numbers of rats had to be caught and bred. This was the job of Unit 731's animal house run by Ishii's elder brother, Mitsuo. There's like a... As I was reading this, there's like this whole image of, I mean, are there, you just think about the, the reputation of rats and fleas, mm-hmm. right? Rats and fleas are just, they're the worst, they're the worst right? Yeah. And, and it just paints this picture. You just see rats and fleas and this is what they're breeding. Yeah. This could, this is like a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. At, Back to the book, at times of peak production, members of Ishii's force were required to dress in civilian clothes and go rat catching. He found a method suitable for weapons use. Here's a description of the flea factory. The second division had four special premises for the mass breeding of fleas in which a mixed temperature, a fixed temperature of 30 degrees Celsius was maintained. Metal jars 30 centimeters high and 50 centimeters wide were used for the breeding of fleas. Rice husks were poured into the jars to keep the fleas in. After these preparations, a few fleas were put into each jar and also a white rat for them to feed on. The rat was fastened in such a way as to not hurt the fleas. It's a horror movie. But... They, so they're they're going through this process of breeding fleas, breeding rats, using the rats to feed the fleas and, and raise the fleas so that they can put these fleas into containers. And they're trying out all different kind of containers and how to drop them and how to spread them. And 
as they're figuring all that out it they're doing other things as well and it wasn't just rats and fleas there at unit 731 back to the book hidden from the outside world at the center of unit 731's roadblock was Ishii's secret of secrets so carefully was its existence kept secret that many junior members of unit 731 had no knowledge that it was there at all for prisoners to pass through the tunnel entrance was to start a journey of no return only two things were certain agony and death three of the Ishii brothers in, including Takeo Mitsuo and of course the youngest Shiro worked at Ping Fan. Takio was the prison commander the prison's guards were second or third sons from the Ishii brothers village Kamo they were called the special squad tied by bonds of peasant loyalty to their lord and master they worshipped him they called him the honorable Ishii or sometimes in reverence war god Ishii most were uneducated but all were unswervingly loyal to ensure allegiance, Ishii paid them extra allowances for their terrible and dangerous duties, the sort of money sent home for which would support whole families through difficult times to come, even pay for their brothers' and sisters' educations. No Camo villager has ever publicly spoken even today about their former life in Manchuria. The village is silent. The Ishii family name is still revered for its kindness. Asked about Unit 731, older residents will apprehensively reply, I have nothing to say because it concerns the secrets of the Honorable Shiro Ishii. Ishii based his unit in remote northern Manchuria so he could experiment on human beings. There, in what was a police state, he could be given an uninterrupted supply of human guinea pigs. With the unique data gained from the human experiments, Ishii believed Japan could outstrip the rest of the world in developing this new weapon of war. No other country would have such accurate details about how epidemics spread or how to protect against them. Only Japan would fully master the twin fields of biological warfare, offense and defense. From the earliest days, Ishii appears to have employed human guinea pigs. It was performed on prisoners who were sentenced to death at Harbin Prison. Each prisoner was placed in a closely guarded cell while the experiments took place. After death, the bodies were burned in an electric furnace to leave no trace. By 1935, motion pictures of human experiments were customarily being shown to senior staff officers. Occupied Manchuria and Harbin in particular was an ideal location for supply of human fodder. And I should say that, so it started off, they would use prisoners that were sentenced to death mm-hmm. that's that's where it started but the supply wasn't enough and it escalated from there just to just to normal people and here's where it talks about that a little bit back to the book occupied Manchuria and Harbin in particular was an ideal location for supply of human fodder Harbin a multiracial city of shifting minority groups was a nest of spies In addition, Japan's occupation had brought forth strong resistance from both Chinese nationalists and Chinese communists, as well as indigenous Manchurians and Mongolians. 
There was also a large white Russian population caught in the middle between communist Russia and expansionist Japan. To maintain control in these difficult circumstances was the job of this Japanese secret service agency called the Tokumu Kikan and the Kenpitai. They did so through brutal tactics of fear. Anyone who voiced opposition to the self-declared paradise of Manchuko was liable to detention. Many never returned. The Japanese Secret Service Guide to the Fundamental Rules for Interrogating War Prisoners reveals that world. So this is a document, which I'm going to read a couple parts of, of, of how you torture people. Their, their process for torturing people. Number 62. Sometimes, depending on circumstances, it is advantageous to resort to tor- torture. Torture, the infliction, number 63, torture, the infliction of physical suffering must be sustained and continued in such a way that there shall be no other way of relief from suffering except by giving truthful information. Torture is advantageous because of the speed with which it is possible with relative ease to compel persons of weak will to give truthful testimony. Testimony, But there is danger that in order to relieve himself from suffering or in order to please the interrogator, the person interrogated will, on the contrary, distort the truth. In the case of a person's of strong will, torture may strengthen their will to resist and leave ill feeling against the empire after the interrogation. In relation to persons of weak will, torture is usually applied in those cases when the person interrogated does not speak the truth even in the face of evidence, but there is full reason to suppose that this person will speak frankly if torture is applied. It is necessary to bear in mind that the methods of torture must be such as can easily be applied as will sustain suffering without rousing feelings of pity and as will not leave either wounds or scars. So let's think about that right there. What they're saying is that the torture has to be so easy to apply that the person that's doing the torture won't feel sorry for him. <clears throat> However, in cases where it's necessary to create the apprehension of death, the harm caused to the person interrogated can be ignored, but this must be done in such a way as to not make it possible to continue, not make it impossible to continue the interrogation. After the application of torture, it is necessary to convince the person who has undergone the torture that the torture applied to him was quite a natural measure or to take such measures as will induce him out of his sense of pride, sense of honor, etc., not to speak about it afterwards. So that's when you say, hey, look, we tortured you and you broke. And you're weak, and you should be embarrassed about it. Number 69, nobody must know about this application of torture except the persons concerned with this. Under no circumstances must other prisoners know about it. It is very important to take measures to prevent shrieks from being heard. So they had their methodology. They had their standard operating procedures. To be a spy or dissident in Manchuria was to risk death by firing squad or decapitation. But there was an alternative far worse. Death at the hands of Unit 731. Unsuspecting and innocent people were also tricked into 
the clutches of unit 731 some were lured by the prospect of employment young boys mothers and children even pregnant women were trapped here's a a medical orderly named Ishibashi who carried out checkups on and there's a word here Marutas and you're gonna hear what Marutas this is what they describe the people that are being held the prisoners inside of unit 731 they called them Marutas or Maruta singular and here's what the orderly had to say about it I started to work for unit 731 at age of 18 in the special section which did the pre- the checkups on new prisoners we took details of their blood type its pulse and pressure and other things prisoners were all referred to as maruta which is the japanese word for a log of wood although when they arrived they had cards each with their name birthplace reason for arrest and age we simply gave them a number a maruta was just a number a piece of experimental material they were not even regarded as human beings most were between 20 and 40 years old none were over 50 they seemed to know their fate we did terrible things so you can see some obvious dehumanization they don't call them people they call them logs they give them a number not a name very standard practice for dehumanization back to the book the prison was a vision of hell through the spy hole cut in the steel doors of each cell the plight of the chained marutas could be seen some had rotting limbs bits of bone protruding through the skin blackened by necrosis others were sweating in high fever writhing in agony or moaning in pain those who suffered from respiratory infections coughed incessantly some were bloated some emaciated and others were blistered or had open wounds many of the cells were communal an infected person would be put in with healthy marutas to see how easily did diseases spread in desperation marutas would try to practice primitive preventive medicine to escape the diseases through these little spy holes the most act the most acute symptoms of the worst diseases in the world were coldly observed by 731's white-coated doctors marutas were used up at the rate of two to three per day the dichotomy between the doctor's true vocation and the need to build a medically based weapon was well and expediently expressed by an individual probably Ishii at the initial assembly of unit 731 so this is a quote our God-given mission as doctors is to challenge all varieties of disease-causing microorganisms to block all roads of intrusion into the human body to annihilate all foreign matter resident in our bodies and to devise the most expeditious treatments possible However, the research upon which we are now about to embark is the complete opposite of these principles and may cause us some anguish as doctors. Nevertheless, I beseech you to 
pursue this research based on the double medical thrill. One, a scientist to exert effort to probing for the truth in the natural science and research and into and discovery of the unknown world. And two, as a military person, to successfully build a powerful military weapon against the enemy. One young serologist, Dr. Akimoto, sent from the Tokyo Imperial University to Manchuria by his professor, recalled the horror of discovering the true purpose of an epidemic prevention and water supply unit. And here's what he said. I was very shocked when I arrived and found out about the human experiments. Very few of those scientists scientists had a sense of conscience. They were treated they treated the prisoners like animals. The prisoners were the enemy. They would eventually be sentenced to death. They thought the prisoners would die an honorable death if in the process they contributed to the progress of medical science. I was very frightened, although my work involved no human experiments. I wrote my resignation three or four times, but there was no way to get out. I was told that if I left, I might secretly be executed. So yeah, there, and I, this is covered in pretty good depth in the book. There's like a whole recruiting process to bring the best doctors and scientists from all the universities in Japan up to Manchuria to work there. So these young kids are becoming doctors thinking they're going to go out there and save people and the exact opposite happens Back to the book Syphilis was studied many female Marutas died as unit 731 endeavored to solve the venereal disease epidemics raging through the ranks of Imperial Japanese Army as its military hordes marauded around the Asian continent on one occasion, a pregnant woman was deliberately infected with the disease, and when her child was born, both were dissected. Cruel experiments were not confined, confined to the roadblock. Five hours from Pingfan, by truck, lay Anta Proving Ground. Unit 731's Education Division Chief, Lieutenant Colonel Nishi, took part in one experiment. Here are his comments. An experiment in which I participated was performed in infecting 10 Chinese war prisoners with gas gangrene. The object of the experiment was to ascertain whether it was possible to infect people with gas gangrene at a temperature of 20 degrees Celsius below zero. This experiment was performed in the following way. 10 Chinese war prisoners were tied to stakes at a distance of 10 to 20 meters from a shrapnel bomb that was charged with gas gangrene. To prevent the men from being killed outright, their heads and backs were protected with a special metal shield and thick quilted blankets, but their legs and buttocks were left unprotected. The bomb was exploded by means of an electric switch, and the shrapnel, bearing gas gangrene germs, scattered all over the spot where the experimentees were bound. All the experimentees were wounded in the legs or buttocks, and seven days later, they died in great torment. 
Miraculously, some Marudas survived all infection experiments, developing remarkable immunities. But their fate was always the same. Unit 731 had many other uses for human fodder. So they, they talk about this in the book, how some people would develop immunity. Some guys were just super tough, just tough. And in fact, there's one where they talk about they they finally kill this guy after experiment. He was a 65-year-old guy. He was just just tough. He survived all these different infections, all these different diseases, and they, they finally, when they kill him, they, they open him up, they dissect him, and they see that he's like got the organs of a 25-year-old or something. But it didn't matter. Even if you were resistant to diseases, they had other experiments to do. The uh, education chief, Nishi, had some other recollections about some of those other experiments. Back to the book. With temperatures below negative 20 degrees Celsius, people were brought out from the detachment's prison into the open. Their arms were bared and made to freeze with the help of an artificial current of air. This was done until their frozen arms, when struck with a short stick, emitted a sound resembling that which a board gives out when it is struck. A film was made on this subject, too. Here's another account of these. So they were, they were trying to figure out things about frostbite, frostbite and what people could take because they were going to be fighting up in the steppes of Manchuria and Russia. They thought they'd be fighting there, so they had to figure out, do experiments to figure out how to heal frostbite once it happened and how much cold someone could take here's a a printer that worked there and here's a a account of what he witnessed two naked men were put in an area 40 to 50 degrees below zero and researchers filmed the whole process until they died they suffered such agony they were digging their nails into each other's flesh This was military life. You couldn't say I want to do this or that in war, however good or bad. The Japanese way is to obey a superior. It was the same as if the order came from the emperor. Sometimes there were no anesthetics. They screamed and screamed. But we didn't regard the logs as human beings. They were lumps of meat on a chopping block. The Japanese way is to obey a superior. I talk about that all the time. You got a question. You got a question. Continuing. Detachment 731 had a sister unit. It was called the 716 Chemical Warfare Unit. Tests were carried out in a large cloud chamber the size of a telephone box. Made of thick steel, it had an agitator in the ceiling connected by large pipes to a gas-producing machine. Marudas were put in a truck, tied to a pole, and pushed inside, some naked, some in full army uniform, and some in gas masks. 
731 and 516 researchers watched them gasp and convulse to their deaths through the chamber's reinforced glass window. A young mother and her baby were even put to death in this chamber. She desperately tried to protect her child from the fumes by covering her it with her body. She died lying on top of her child. Here's another account from a medical orderly about other experiments beyond cold and beyond chemical and beyond beyond biological here we get to malnutrition I saw malnutrition experiments they were conducted by the project team under the technician Yoshimura he was a civilian member of unit 731 the purpose of the experiments I believe was to find out how long a human being could survive with just water and biscuits two marudas were used for this experiment they continuously circled a prescribed course within the grounds of the unit carrying approximately a 20 kilogram sandbag on their backs one succumbed before the other but they both ultimately died the duration of the experiment was about two months they only received army biscuits to eat and water to drink so that they would not have been able to survive for very long they weren't allowed a lot of sleep either. And here's one of the major generals, Kawashima. And he talks about the fate of some of the Marutas. From 500 to 600 prisoners were consigned to Detachment 731 annually. If a prisoner survived the inoculation of lethal bacteria, this did not save him from a repetition of the experiments which continued until death from the infection supervened the infected people were given medical treatment in order to test various methods of cure they were fed normally and after they had fully recovered were used for the next experiment but infected with a different kind of germ at any rate no one ever left this factory alive following anatomical study the bodies of the dead were burned in the detachments incinerator so as I said there's even if you're just tough as nails they're just gonna give you a different disease or more disease and all pretty horrible and now it gets worse back to the book perhaps the greatest horror of unit 731 was vivisection unit 731 had two teams of pathologists one headed by dr. Akamoto the other by dr. Ishikawa anatomical study performed by these squads was not always confined to the dead pathology squad assistant Kirum Zawa saw vivisections 
Unit 731 did work on living human bodies, he said. To do this work, our sentiments were suppressed. So this is a whole new level. We're actually dissecting or vivisecting people that are alive. Back to the book. Some doctors are said to have come all the way from Japan just to see such a dissection. Laboratory assistants got extra pay, called the chemical weapons allowance, for wielding the scalpel during this dreadful work. Blood is said often to have spurted all over the ceiling of the dissection room as certain incisions were made. Limbs of the dying Marudas would flex and jerk involuntarily as the scalpel entered particular parts of the brain. Organs would twitch vigorously after they were thrown into jars of formalin for preservation. Not only were anesthetics researched, but also bizarre surgical experiments connecting different parts of the body are reported to have been performed. So, yeah, this is this is a horror movie that's actually happening. You got sewing different parts of the body together. This is just a horror movie, except this is not a movie. And the the people that are being referred to as Marudas right now are people. Back to the book. The world will probably never learn of all the grisly experiments that took place at Unit 731. Among them were pressure experiments, similar to those carried out by Dr. Rasher at Dachau concentration camp. Presumably done on behalf of the Japanese Air Force, it was an extremely painful method of killing. Individual placed in the Unit 731 pressure chamber would suffer terrible agony as their eyes first popped out of their sockets as the eye membrane ruptured, and later as blood forced its way out through pores in the skin. Marudas had their blood siphoned off and replaced with horse blood in plasma experiments. It was said that a number of these poor men, women, and children who became Marutas were mummified alive in total dehydration experiments. They sweated to death under the heat of hot, dry fans. At death, their corpses weighed only one-fifth normal body weight. Others were electrocuted, boiled alive, killed in giant centrifuges, or died from prolonged exposure to x-rays. In all, some 3,000 are said to have been murdered. Some were just killed off when there was an excess of supply. They were killed like animals in in an abattoir. Every bit of their bodies mercilessly, mercilessly used up in the name of the terrible medicine of military science. Now, as Ishii went on with these experiments, he was he got worried about something. 
And this is what he got worried about. Back to the book. There was a small but crucial chance that some of his weapons might not work on American or Anglo-Saxon racial groups. In 1943, researcher Utsumi was sent on trips to Inner Mongolia to study the immunities of Mongolians and other races. Another had already been sent to a place called Mukden. So Mukden's another prison camp. So he got concerned that as he did these experiments that some diseases affect different races differently. Mm -hmm. And there was some chance that, oh, if we'd use this type of bacteria against an anglo-saxon or a white person it might not work Mm -hmm. so we gotta we gotta figure that one out well the japanese had captured americans and brits and australians so here we're gonna hear a little bit about the prisoners in mukden like i said is another prison camp back to the book warren w welchel known more familiarly as Pappy, came from Tulsa, Oklahoma, was a master sergeant with the U.S. 200th Coast Artillery Anti-Aircraft Regiment. On April 9, 1942, Baton fell. On May 6th, so did Corregidor. Pappy Welchel and 88,000 other Americans and Filipinos were captured. Pappy remembers... It was the beginning of one of the most dehumanizing experiences ever perpetrated on humans. Welchel and his fellow prisoners had to endure the familiar ill treatment the Japanese meted out to prisoners of war, a proceeding that is understandable only if viewed from the Japanese standpoint that to die in battle is honorable, but to surrender is to be shamed. But it is also dehumanizing because Unknown to him, he was to become a human guinea pig in Japan's experimental program as they sought to build weapons of biological warfare. Welchel was to spend three years of his life as one of the 1,485 American and British and Australian and New Zealand prisoners of war who were herded into a special prison camp in Manchuria at Mukden. And, of course, uh, they hiked there back to the book the route the 1,000 American prisoners took to Mukden began with what became known as the Bataan Death March we were subjected to beatings killings forced marches during the heat of the day we were deprived of food water and any medical attention whatsoever Pappy Welchel remembered They were penned in two camps in the Philippines. Hundreds more died, both in the camp and and from suffocation as more than 100 crammed into boxcars on the journey from one camp to another. Then in October of 1942, about 1,000 U.S. troops had been singled out and marched to Manila, the capital of the Philippines. They went aboard the Japanese vessel Totori Maru. And here's a quote. From the moment we went aboard that hell ship, they were experimenting on us. They threw us aboard to see how much we could stand and how many of us died. They took us from the tropics to a bitterly cold climate, and that took its toll on us. They gave us few crackers and little rice to eat, and I feel that it was a systematic way of beginning to test us, to to find out how much the Americans and the British and Australians could endure. And that was said by... 
Greg, Greg Rodriguez Sr., now retired from his career f- as a foreman in Henrietta, Oklahoma. Rodriguez was a private in 59 Coastal Artillery Corps, U.S. Army. He survived the journey to Mukden and three years in the camp itself. Now there's another guy named Robert Peaty, who was a senior British officer, and he was also in prison in Mukden, and he kept a daily diary, or at least he tried to keep a daily diary, and he kept it in code form. But here's some here's some of his entries into his journal. 19 April 43. Another Japanese medical investigated investigation started today as apparently the findings of the first did not meet with approval. 24 May. Diarrhea is increasing. 25 May. Waiting for medicine for diarrhea, which was not forthcoming. Men were ordered to exercise by playing baseball. 26 May, diagnosis of diarrhea consists of running the men around the parade ground. I saw some of them with bare feet. Those who do not mess their pants or drop from exhaustion are reckoned to be liars and are told to go back. A protest has been made and a change is expected in both methods and personnel. 4 June, third Japanese medical investigation started. 5 June, anti-dysentery inoculation, one half cc including Flesher Y. 8 June, diarrhea still steadily increasing. 13 June, second anti-dysentery shot, 1 cc. 6 August, there are now 208 dead. So as they're doing these experiments and they've got these dead bodies of American, Australian, British soldiers, they're still trying to utilize them when they're dead to try and learn from them. Back to the book. One morning early in 1943, Frank James was assigned to burial detail. This is of some of those bodies. I was pretty sick myself. But I wouldn't go to the hospital because nobody that went in ever came out. I went round to the hut and there must have been, I reckon, 340 bodies stacked there. Each body had a tag attached to its toe. There were two or three men who I took to be Japanese doctors there. They were all masked 100%. All the time they were there, their faces were covered. Another fellow and I were told to lift up the bodies and put them on the autopsy tables. Then they began to cut them open. They went deep into the stomach, the bile, the small intestine, and they took what looked like pancreas and lungs. They also operated on the heads and took part of the brain. So, just a horror horror show. For the prisoners... The end of their incarceration in Munken was quite matter-of-fact. And again, this is a fast-forward, and it also skips ahead a little bit, talking about how, how the war ended and what that was like. After days of rumor, Major Petey's diary records for August 16, 1945, six men were brought into camp this evening. 
and from the fact that they were smoking more than the regulation distance from an ashtray, we knew they were not prisoners of war. After an unusually good supper, all prisoners were released from the guardhouse. And he continues on. This is on 20 August. At about 7 p.m., a small Russian a small party of Russian officers arrived and announced that we are now free. The Russian officer in charge said, here they are. Do what you like with them. Cut their throats or shoot them. It's all the same to me. But this was translated diplomatically as he says he hands them over to you. For Major Petey and the hundreds who had survived the privations of Mukden, the victory was theirs in every sense. They had no need, they decided, to seek reprisals. It would have been, said the Major, beneath our dignity. It would have reduced us to their level. After all, they had to live the rest of their lives with what they'd done. So, the horror show ends, and these these soldiers that had been tortured and killed, murdered, they they decide they're not even going to take revenge because they don't want to they don't want to lower themselves to that level. That's an, an amazing. But like I said, that had skipped ahead. The war still wasn't over. And here we go, back to the book. Ishii expected the final and decisive battle would take place between June and September 1945 when America attempted to land on Japan proper. Okinawa, Japan's own island bastion, fell in June. The month before, Germany had surrendered. Russia, urged by Britain and America at Yalta, turned their attention to Manchuria. For forces swelled on both sides of the Soviet-Manchurian border as millions of troops remained at standoff point. Tanaka's flea factory was expanded and given more staff. With 4,500 flea breeding machines in operation, 100 million insects could be produced every few days. Ishii planned to breed 300 kilograms, approximately 1 billion plague fleas, in the run-up to war. Special training courses in flea breeding were set up at Pingfein in June, and subunit members ordered back afterwards to establish their own production bases. To propagate plague cultures and to feed the fleas, rats were needed in their thousands. Yamada ordered every land unit of the Kwantung Army to trap rats. Karasawa's new conveyor system and again I'm throwing names in here that are explained with a lot more detail in the book that's why you buy the book and read the book so you can get the full picture Karasawa's new conveyor system was working round the clock producing plague typhoid cholera and, and anthrax organisms which were sufficient if correctly dispersed to infect half the planet Between midnight and 1 a.m. on the morning of August 9th, after Hiroshima had been devastated by the atomic bomb, the Soviet army swept across the border into Manchuria and Korea with a massive force of 1.5 million men, 5,500 tanks, and 5,000 airplanes. The Kwantung army was thrown into panic. 
confusion broke loose. That day or the day after, Yamada ordered the destruction of units 731 and 100. Again, 731 we've been talking about, 100 was another one of these parallel units that was doing the same type of stuff. A nearby sapper unit was ordered to blow up Pingfen's main headquarters. The unit's personnel were to destroy all evidence and be evacuated to Seoul in, in Korea. A second bomb was yet to be dropped on Nagasaki. So here the war is obviously turning. We drop the bomb and they go to cover their tracks. They completely destroy everything, destroy the buildings, destroy all the records, destroy everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Here we go back to the book. At Pingfan, Marutas were the first to be destroyed. Members of the 516 Chemical Warfare Unit gassed the Marutas by throwing flasks of toxic chemicals into their cells. 600 local Manchurian and Chinese laborers who worked at the Yagasawa plant disease farm and elsewhere at Pingfang were machine gunned. Potassium cyanide poison was also put into the Maruda's breakfast food. So they're just trying to, like I said, destroy everything and make it like it didn't happen. And as they wrap this up, the rest of Unit 731, expecting a few left behind for final clearing up, assembled on the 13th and 14th at the shunting yard. Ishii made a formal speech extolling the memory of Unit 731 and its diligent research. As if in mockery of him, it was interrupted by the sound of a prison exploding. Members were issued vials of poison. Ishii had originally wished every branch member and all families in Togo Village to commit suicide. But this proposal, this proposal was met, met the violent disagreement of Major General Kikuchi, 731's research chief. Nonetheless, some took their lives without orders from Ishii. So he thought they should all kill themselves. Got a little resistance there. I would, I would have thought that Kikuchi perhaps would have provided more resistance against the behavior that they were occurring to, not just to just want to protect himself here at the end. Hey, I'm not going to question anything as long as it doesn't affect me, mm. right? Yeah. That's what that is. On August 15th, the emperor broadcast Japan's defeat and surrender. It had never occurred to Ishii that Japan might give in. He had to confirm the broadcast before believing it. Such was the shock that, according to one account, Ishii was seen in a listless condition, utterly crestfallen. That day in the late afternoon, Unit 731 train arrived at Hinsking. There, on the following night, Ishii made a final address to, the, to his Ernst Weil troops. He swore them to life in the shadows for the rest of their lives. In the light of the candle held by an aide-de-camp, Ishii ordered them never to speak of their military past, never to take official positions in the future, and never again to contact each other. It is a promise that some have kept to this day. The pathetic end of Japan's once mighty biological warfare effort was to let loose thousands of infected rats in the neighborhood of Ping Fan. It caused a local plague epidemic which claimed many innocent lives into the summer of 1946. At Unit 100, 
A handful of infected horses were freed after the surrender. Yeah, you know, you hear that argument about the about the dropping of the atomic bombs. Mm-hmm. And the common argument is always it would have cost massive amounts of lives on both sides, Americans and Japanese, because the, Amer- the Japanese were going to fight to the death mm-hmm. and the Americans were going to kill them all. And so the best thing to do is like, okay, we drop the atomic bombs. This just kind of makes that a closed deal in my mind. Hmm. You know, you got people that are trying to, got enough, enough biological weaponry to infect half the world. So, and again, jumping forward in this book, get the book so that you can get the whole story. But there's a, a massive investigation that takes place to find out what's going on there's little leaks they they catch wind of a little of it but not a lot of it and at one point they're interrogating Ishii and here's Ishii Ishii denied any involvement our work was to protect soldiers he said did anyone else concern themselves with biological warfare against crop plants I do not know replied Ishii his interrogator made no effort to pursue the matter Thompson a veterinarian by training turned the questions of biological warfare against animals. We did not do any experiments on large animals, said Ishii. We used small animals as test animals. Besides, we had no veterinarians. What field tests were made with the plague organism, he asked. Due to the danger of it, there were no field experiments with that organism. There were a great many field mice in Manchuria, and it would have been dangerous to conduct field experiments with plague because the field mice would very easily carry the organisms and start an epidemic. We conducted the experiments with plague in the laboratory, said Ishii. What kind of experiments? Thompson inquired. We put rats in cages inside the room and sprayed the whole room with plague bacteria. This was to determine how the rats became infected, whether through the eyes, nose, mouth, or through the skin. What did you find out? The test results were not too favorable. We usually got 10% infection. By which way? That was the total, said Ishii, misunderstanding the question. What route was most effective, Thompson repeated. Through the nose, said Ishii. Also, through an open wound. So they're interrogating. He's being pretty, he's lying. He's covering up, mm-hmm. but there's there's a twist that we're gonna see unfold here, and I'll explain it a little bit so it makes sense as it comes forth. The twist in this story is that the Cold War was about to start. The Cold War was now starting, mm-hmm. and America, you know, these experiments that had taken place and knowledge had been gained mm-hmm. through this through these evil experiments. Well, America looked at the knowledge. And recognize or, or saw that there could be knowledge that they didn't that we didn't have that America didn't have and and decided let's try and get this knowledge mm. now one of the problems is and again this is going to unfold but I'll give a, a brief synopsis of it one of the problems is if you charge someone with war crimes and you put them on trial well you got to say what they're on what the war crimes are that they committed mm. and if you say that the war crimes were committed were these experiments with chemical and biological weapons, then people are gonna know what the results of the experiments were. Mm. And that means the knowledge is gonna be out there and the knowledge could fall into the hands of people that we were now looking to be facing in another war, Mm -hmm. which ended up being the Cold War, luckily, not a full war. So 
that's how this that's how this story continues to unfold back to the book there's no question that Ishii as an as an individual and many of his associates were guilty of serious war crimes as a lieutenant general Ishii was un, Ishii undoubtedly possessed sufficient high military rank to be classified as a class A war criminal he was the top of the tree in his own field his actions as the head of unit 731 qualified him as a criminal on many accounts not only was biological warfare considered extra legal by most countries but Ishii was also guilty of outrageous conventional war crimes he had carried out calculated human experimentations on prisoners of war a conventional war crime that had long been prescribed in the manuals of military law of every major power he'd carried out similar research against innocent civilians clearly a crime against humanity Ishii had taken his biological weapon out of the research laboratory and used it in the field. He had sought autonomy and independence of action for his biological warfare forces throughout the war zones. He had done nothing to restrain the conduct of his subordinates. So this guy is as guilty as they come. They, there was other, other events that took place that were equally bad and here we go some tribunals were held in China the Philippines and the Pacific Islands but most a total of 314 cases were held at Yokohama Japan at these courts a sufficient number of medical atrocity cases were heard for them to be considered as a special category the most well-known and worst case presented by legal section at Yokohama concerned the fate of captured American flyers held by the Japanese Western Army in Kyushu after April 1945. The appalling experiments to which they had been subjected included vivisection and the substitution of seawater for their blood. For this gross act of barbarism on August 27, 1948, the nine Japanese involved were convicted and sentenced either to be hanged or to serve life imprisonment. One, Professor Ishiyama of Kishu University committed suicide in prison. So, clearly, they had the attitude of like, we're going to get some of these guys that conducted experiments and that's exactly what should should happen and this was a much smaller number of people that were tortured and killed and used this human experience than what was used it at 731 continuing on cold war tensions had been increasing throughout 1946 the desire to mete out stern justice at the Tokyo trial was increasingly subsumed if found in conflict with the interests of national security. Japan was in the front line. So too now was biological warfare. On August 24, 1946, Washington cabled MacArthur, ordering him to protect intelligence, especially scientific, which might jeopardize America's national security. It read, under present circumstances, intelligence relating to research and development in the field of science and war material should not be disclosed to nations other than the British Commonwealth. Biological warfare intelligence seems by this time to have become too much too sensitive to be brought into the glare of massive of a massive international trial. 
Throughout 1946, both Russia and America appear to have been reluctant to reveal their hands. In Japan, America appears to have taken some extra precautions to prevent information from falling into Soviet hands. So you can see how it's unfolding. One of these, again, one of these senior officers that is talked about deeply in the book, but I didn't discuss too, too much. His name was Nato. And here's a quote from NATO. We want to cooperate, and we owe it to the general headquarters, but we have a responsibility to our friends. We took an oath never to divulge information on human experiments. We are afraid some of us will be prosecuted as war criminals. We do not know how much others will be willing to give us. If you can give us documentary immunity, probably we can get everything. The subordinates, not the section chiefs, know all the details. If we contact someone who is a communist, he is liable to tell the Russians. The Japanese were given insurances that war crimes would not be involved. MacArthur sent a five, again, fast forward. MacArthur sent a five-part radio message to Washington showing the extent of his knowledge. It's clear from part five, and they have the whole, the whole message in the book. It is clear from part five of the message that MacArthur favored gaining the biological warfare technical information by offering the assurances that data would not be employed at war crimes trials. And here's Ishii. I will not reveal the information to the Russians. You can see how this is unfolding. This is like one of those horrible when a crime gets committed and for whatever little technicality people are getting off. That's exactly what's going on and you can hear it unfolding. And I mean, (sighs) does national security trump the... It's almost like an ego move, right? It's almost like an ego move. You're going to make these guys pay. It's also a morality move, and it's a justice. It's, I guess, it's beyond ego and beyond morality. It's justice. Yeah. These guys were criminals. These guys perf- did heinous things to other human beings, and they should pay. And as as strong as that case is, it it didn't seem to hold up to the case of national security. Yeah. We want to have this information. Not that we were going to use it, but we better have it. Yeah. Better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. It's better to have it yourself and not let your enemy have it, which is the Russians at this point. Yeah. So that's where the decision's getting made. Yeah. So you got to kind of consider what's more important, like this justice. Yeah, that's exactly the question. Which is and the answer is pretty clear. What the what the answer is is safety, right? The, I mean, security. Yeah, it's national security. Important. National you know, you security can get versus all the justice. Ju- yeah, you can get all the justice you want, but then it's going to create some serious problems in the future. It's kind of like, hmm, you know, is it worth it? Yeah. And here's Ishii talking some more. I cannot give detailed technical data. All the records were destroyed. I never did know many details, and I have forgotten what I knew. I can give you general results. I've never heard of Anta. That's another uh, base that they used until I returned to Pingfan in 1945. I did not visit the location. I am responsible for all that went on at Pingfan. I am willing to shoulder all responsibility. Neither my superiors or my subordinates had anything to do with issuing instructions for experiments. If you ask me specific questions, I can tell you general results. I am wholly responsible for Pingfan. I do not want to see any of my subordinates or superiors get in trouble for what occurred. 
if you will give me documentary immunity for myself superiors subordinates and subordinates I can get you all the information for you so he's he's making a deal mm-hmm. he's making a deal he's saying look I'm responsible for everything and what he's doing is saying look I'm responsible for everything mm. and if you give me immunity I'll get you all the information you want mm. it's actually a good move it's a good move on his part because he says I'm responsible for everything even if they say no we don't take a deal and we're gonna hang you he's still he's still trying to protect as many as, as many of his people as he can yeah. up and down the chain of command yeah. the advisability of complying with Ishii's bargain war crimes immunity in written form in exchange for scientific data was to occupy some of Washington's most senior minds throughout the summer of 1947 Ishii continued Masuda Kaneko and NATO whom you say you know can give you a lot of information I would like to be hired by the United States as a biological warfare expert in preparation for the war with Russia I can give you the advantage of my 20 years research and experience I have given a great deal of thought to tactical problems in the defense against biological warfare I have made studies on the best agents to be employed in various regions and in cold climates I can write volumes about biological warfare including the little thought of strategic and tactical employment god this guy this is a scumbag So it continues and open back to the book in an open admission about human experimentation allegations about the the use of biological warfare even hints about the connection between unit 731 and a member of the Japanese Imperial family were all contained in the files of legal sections case 330 by the middle of 1947 how had this come about and why was nothing be done being done about the files contents so this is getting shut down that's what's happening now here's the sort of the more official opinion back to the book on balance the subcommittee felt it was desirable to avoid a war crimes prosecution and here's what they said since it is believed that the USSR possesses only a small portion of this technical information and since any war crimes trial would completely reveal such data to all nations it is felt that such publicity must be avoided in interests of defense and the security of the United States it is believed it is believed also that war crimes prosecution of Ishii and his associates would serve to stop the flow of much additional information of a technical and scientific nature it is felt that the use of this information as a basis for war crimes evidence would be a grave detriment to Japanese cooperation with the United States occupation forces in Japan So there you hear the decisions getting made and that's the way it went and in the end going back to the book no member of unit 731 was called before any British or American military tribunal to account for war crimes none of them well actually not by any British or Americans because the Russians they still went after him and they and when they went after him and they got some of them they they made America look bad mm. and they had a big trial and here's the the state council the state council's name was Smirnoff and here we go back to the book Smirnoff spelled out a message intended for the ears of an audience thousands of miles from the courtroom these men Ishii and the rest 
Now, Ishii wasn't a part of this trial, but Ishii and the rest enjoy the protection of those reactionary forces in the imperialist camp who are themselves dreaming of a time when they will be able to hurl upon mankind loads of TNT, atomic bombs, and lethal bacteria. The accused received the sentences as follows, and then they listed these guys, that various uh, soldiers and civilians that served in some of these biological warfare experimentation centers. They got 25 years, 20 years, 18 years, 15 years, 12 years, 10 years, two years, three years. But again, those sentences don't include Ishii or the other main players at Unit 731 because they got kind of protected. Not even kind of. They got protected by America in exchange for their information. Sort of in response to everything that was going on there on December 27, 1941, the following story appeared in the New York Times, datelined Tokyo. No knowledge, MacArthur says. General General Douglas MacArthur's headquarters said today there were no known cases in which Japanese used American prisoners in germ warfare experiments. The headquarters added that the Japanese had done some experiments with animals, but that there was no evidence they had ever used human beings. As far as it is known here, no Americans held prisoner by the Japanese at Mukden ever accused their captors of having used them as guinea pigs in biological warfare tests. So, that's all not true. Mm-hmm. That's all not true. Back to the book. To this day, Russia has allowed itself to bask in feelings of moral superiority over America and not without some justification in respect of the way it brought its Unit 731 criminals to justice. So, just that's the way way it flushed out. Now, this, you might think that's a little disturbing. This is equally disturbing. This is just horrible back to the book after the war most of the scientists of unit 731 prospered much is explained by the clear complicity on the part of the United States authorities in the war crimes of unit 731 the detachments civilian researchers and other associated scientists were quite free to return to academia and it goes through this lit this multiple page list of of guys that went on to work at the Research Institute for Natural Resources, chief, and another guy was chief research section at a pharmaceutical company, um, Dr. Ishikawa, once a pathologist at Unit 731, who had brought home with him thousands of human pathological samples, became a professor at, at a university in 1944, a position he held throughout the 1960s and 70s. He eventually became president of the university's medical school. The local newspaper once planned to award him with a medal for his contribution to society, but after students who knew of his wartime record objected, the award was canceled. So these guys carried on. Another guy, professor of Showa University, pharmacological. Another professor of bacteriology at Kyoto University. The list goes on, on and on. Dr. Hisato 
Yoshimura, who directed Unit 731's frostbite experiments, literally freezing people to death, became a faculty member at the Kyoto Prefectural Medical College in the 1950s, and later its president. And, like I said, that list goes on and on and on. And, of course, we still haven't heard about Ishii yet the mastermind behind this whole thing. Here we go back to the book. Ishii inherited much of the family's property in Kamo Village. Because if you remember, Kamo Village is where they bring all these prison guards from their home village so that they'd get the complete loyalty from them. So he inherited much of the property's family, the family property in Kamo Village. His two elder brothers, Takeo and Mitsuo, were childless, unlike Shiro, who fathered six children. Takeo Unit 731 Special Prison Squad Leader eventually died of liver cancer in Kobe, the city Wentz's second wife had come. Mitsuo, who once supervised the, the unit's animal house, outlived his younger brother Shiro, but was unable to work after the war and lived on money gained by selling his country property. Mitsuo, Mitsuo and Takeo and their eldest brother Toreo, who had been killed in the Russo Japanese war during Japan's Meiji period are buried in the Ishii family cemetery at Kamo. On August 17, 1958, 13 years after the end of the war, in the back room of a stonemason's shop near Tama Cemetery, Tokyo, Ishii made his first and apparently only post-war appearance before assembled junior members of his former unit. He reminisced about the early days of Unit 731 in a speech reportedly still rich in xenophobia and elitism, Ishii described how his unit was to have been the salvation of Japan, a country then encircled by the West, scientifically impoverished yet spiritually rich. He apologized for their suffering since the end of the war but urged his audience to remain proud of the memory of Unit 731. And here's a little part of his what he said. It was in order that we could have precious human material that the Unit 731 was set for the saving of the nation. National circumstances were not permitting. Unfortunately, we did not achieve our aims. So even after all that, even after all that, even looking back after 13 years after the end of the war, he's looking back and, and still has the same mindset. And that mentality is hard to understand, and I want to shed a little bit of light on that mentality F- and do that through some personal accounts of what happened at Unit 731. And that's from this other book. It's called Unit 731 Testimony. And let's go to this book, and I think these make it pretty clear where this mentality comes from. So, this account is from a captain in the Japanese Imperial Army named Kojima Kojima Takeo. And here we go. Perhaps there are some people here, and, and by the way, most of these accounts are from an exhibition that went around 
Japan kind of explaining what had happened and people would come to this exhibition and they would capture if someone was involved in unit 731 or someone remembered or someone had a story about it they would capture their account and that's what this book has a lot of from this expo um, that this exhibition that they did I think it was in the mid 1990s that they did this exhibition so this particular person that was showed up at this exhibition he was a captain in the Japanese army his name was Kojima Takeo and here's what he said perhaps there are some people here at this unit 731 exhibition who think that this was all there was to Japanese aggression at the time unit 731 was merely one segment of the dark shadow of Japan's aggression and I would like to tell of my experience in this and I think this is why I, I pulled this one specifically because this talks about where this came from where this mentality came from that Ishii had to the end we were born and raised in a society of emperism a person's absolute responsibility above the army and government was to the emperor the emperor was a living deity the Emperor's command was supreme and controlled the entire country. We were told how we must serve the Emperor, how we should behave toward our parents, how should we, we should behave toward our teachers, and how we should behave toward our siblings. We were taught that Japan is a sacred country, that the people of Japan are a superior race, that the people of China, Korea, Southeast Asia and Russia were all inferior races and the superior race must govern them and by doing so we would bring them happiness this was the cause to which Japan must devote itself and he goes on again I'm not reading the entire thing but you have to get the book to get these entire accounts soon after we went into service we were given training to get our courage up we were ordered to watch beheadings. Chinese were made to sit by a hole in the ground and the seasoned soldiers would cut their heads off. Blood spurted up from the neck into the air and the bodies would roll into the holes. Then we had bayonet practice. Victims had their hands tied behind them around a tree and were used as bayonet targets. We had to watch this as part of our training. This was a shock to me, and for two or three days, food would not pass through my throat. But two years later, I became an officer in charge of a platoon and with about 25 men under me. Later, I became a company commander with 151 men, and that meant that if I didn't build a strong platoon and a strong company, I would fall behind. And so, I too tested the courage of the soldiers under me by using Chinese prisoners this was normal training in the Japanese army when we were not involved in major operations we would go out into our own immediate area on continuous three-day operations to see if there were any enemy around on such occasions we stole tortured and slaughtered people the Chinese had a saying about us that Japan had a three-way complete policy burned completely killed completely and pillaged completely yet when we were doing those things we had no sense of guilt or of doing anything wrong 
It was for the emperor. For the country. So that's how they're raised. And that's how you end up with someone like Ishii that goes through all that and still remains loyal, even after defeat, still remains loyal to the deposed emperor. And here's an army doctor named Yuasa Ken. This is not easy for me to speak about, but it is something I must confess. What I did was wrong. It is also true that it was forced on me by the government, but that does not reduce the size of my crime. It is something that happened a long time ago, but those who are not taught about the war are ill-educated. The Japanese army went to plunder and steal materials and to kill. Japan wanted iron, coal, and provisions, and the army drove into the mountains to prosecute the war. At the time, the Japanese used derogatory terms for the Chinese, like Chinaman and Chink, and looked at them with contempt. When I was a child, we were told to despise the Chinese, despise the Koreans. It's all right to conquer them. We have become elite and should join with the Americans and British and conquer Asia. I hated war and killing, but around middle school and into college, I began to think that such ideas were unavoidable. People were driven into a life which human qualities, in which human qualities were lost. The soldier's outlet for frustrations was the brothel of the comfort women. Any means was resorted to in order to raise one's rank and keep up the authority of the country. And in the army hospital, we practiced vivisection. Living persons are good for the scalpel practice, so people were brought in. One day soon after I started at the assignment, the hospital head told us, today we will have surgery practice. I was startled. It was an order. There was no getting out of it. Normally, we dissected people who had died of such diseases as as typhoid fever, dysentery, and tuberculosis. Now, we were being taken to the dissection room for a different type of exercise. Soldiers came along as observers. Everything started with a signal from the hospital head. One Chinese had big thighs and walked slowly and calmly. He laid down and had no sign of fear, no stress on his face. He was composed. Someone else used him for surgery practice. I went over and pushed the other one onto the operating table. I had no feeling of apology or of doing anything bad. The farmer was resigned to his fate, and he lowered his head and walked forward. I didn't want to get my clothes dirty from him. I wanted to look sharp. He went down as far as the operating table, but didn't want to lie down. A nurse, using broken Chinese, told him, We're using ether. It won't hurt, so lie down. She gave me a wry smile when she said that. 
She had been working there for a long time, and when I happened to meet her again much later and asked her about it, she didn't remember. She was handling so many vivisections, it was routine. People who repeat evil acts do not remember them. There is no sense of wrongdoing. War means this also. War is not just shooting. In order for Japan to win, all the Chinese were made prisoners. Women's bellies were cut open. Homes were burned. If you couldn't do this, then you weren't a loyal soldier of the emperor. Even if one despises an act, one must bear it. From there, a person becomes accustomed to it. We all received practice. It was normal to smile at this. The crimes committed during our aggressive wars are forgotten, gone from memory. At the time, they were considered right. So the surgery began. The man was given ether and dissected. His appendix was so small that it was like looking for a burrowing worm. I had to cut and search repeatedly. The blood flow was stopped, nerves were cut, bones were cut with a saw, and a tracheotomy was performed. Blood and air escaped from his body. The blood came foaming up. Practice time was two hours. The man died, and his body was thrown into a hole and buried. That was my first crime. After that, it was easy. Eventually, I dissected 14 Chinese. I also saw vivisections. Once I saw about 40 doctors gathered, there was a man bound and squatting. The guard asked the doctors, are you ready? And the prisoner was laid out without anesthetic. Two cuts were made down his belly. The victim made a few gasps. The dissection was a botch and he died soon. I saw four people dissected that way. It is said that there are that there were 20 million victims of the war in China. But only 10 to 20% of these were killed in gunfire exchange. Most non-resisting old people, women and children were captured and slaughtered. Prisoners of war could not be taken to the front or allowed to escape, so they were killed in the manner of the rape of Nanking. Those who were a part of it do not come forward to tell the people how it was. Why? Because the Japanese have forgotten all about it. Everybody's forgotten. They did things and got medals, and they don't think they did anything worse than kicking a dog. They weren't bothered because they never considered it a dreadful thing to take a scalpel and cut open a living person. And this will be the last piece of testimony that I read. And this was a 
soldier that was attached to Unit 731 named Ohara Takayoshi. And he said, I joined the cavalry from my home in 1939. In April of that year, I was stationed in Northeast China. Then in March 1942, I was transferred to Unit 731. I did not know anything about that unit. My first duty was taking care of domesticated animals, such as sheep, goats, horses, and cows. I assisted in researching the diseases that affect these animals. I saw tests in which Maruta were tied to crosses in a large circle as planes flew over and dropped bacteriological bombs in the area surrounded by the crosses. Their legs were chained and their bodies tied tightly. We observed the tests from a distance of about 200 meters. I had the job of cleaning up and disinfecting after the experiments and gathering debris lying around. I want people who come to this exhibition to tell their children and grandchildren that there is nothing more stupid and fearful than war. I want people to tell their children and grandchildren that there is nothing more stupid and more fearful than war. Nothing more stupid and fearful than war. And I think that's a a good quote to end this, except for it is wrong. It is wrong because as stupid and as fearful and as reprehensible as war is, there is something worse than war. And that is allowing this kind of evil to exist. As bad as war is, and war is awful, war is hell, and I have said that over and over again, as have many others. But there are worse things than war. Things like Unit 731. Things like the Nazi concentration camps. Things like the rape of Nan King. There are things that are worse than war. And there are times when war is not only justified, but it is a moral obligation. And I do not say that lightly. But when evil and when darkness and when malevolent and demonic spirits rise to power, they must be stopped and the responsibility for that lies within all of us every day to do our best to do our best 
to move the world away from the darkness and the demons that linger inside men's minds. They move the world toward the light and toward what is good. And I think that is all I have got for tonight. So, <clears throat> Echo Charles. Mm-hmm. I think while I decompress a little bit, if you could talk about ways for the crew here to move towards the light. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to try. I know, I know. And if you think about Originally, mm-hmm. when we started getting into these kind of podcasts that touched upon some very heavy, some very disturbing subject matter, mm-hmm. that was that was where the whole sort of ex, let's call it extended closing to the show began. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, because just and and I remember. Like I remember, like the first time I said to you, like, "Hey, man, you just talk for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> I need a break over here." Yeah, that's how we ended up with this this thing. Yeah, but then you know. the interesting thing people would say, "Hey, thanks for doing that." Yeah, because you're not the only one that needs to decompress after you hear this freaking crap. Yeah, after you hear about this just heinous evil. Yeah, that really happened. Yeah, we need a little break. We need a little Echo Charles here <laughs> to. You know, yeah, that's that's rough. Where you you know you go from vivisection, you know, Bro. and then what if you were like, hey, all right, that's all I got for tonight. Yeah, I'll catch no, you next. I can't and leave then, you like that. Yeah, then you kind of all right, you turn off, you go into I don't know work or whatever. Yeah. Whenever you listen to it, go to bed. Yeah. Ooh, no, that's that proud. came out with um, with one twenty one, one twenty two, and one twenty three with Louis Puller and yeah. with Chesty Puller, Louis Puller. And then Jake Schick, I wasn't gonna do. I could. I, I. I. I said to myself, I can't do one twenty one and one twenty two, and just leave one twenty two out there in the world by itself. I needed yeah. Jake Schick, my brother, to come on and like yeah. show that you can get through that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so this is kind of the same thing. You know, I just can't yeah. like walk off. Yeah. Yeah. Mic drop, and then yeah, boom. And then, yeah. Hey, you guys deal with it now. No. We're gonna deal with it together. That's yeah. what we're gonna have Echo Charles help us deal with it. Let's all come back a little yeah. bit, little bit, little bit. Try you to kind of can't forget. I mean, it's you're not gonna forget that, you know. Anyway, no. just like you, you can't forget machetes and you can't forget the Rape and King and all these no. other things. So you're gonna remember, but can't um, forget the Mulai Massacre. Yeah, the harsh. I mean, just it's 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 crazy. Yeah, but yeah, man. Oh, far be it from our intention. To leave you with bad feelings that last. We want, I've said this before, right? We want you to remember, but not dwell. Yes. Right? I think that's important. I Spe- think so. You know, too. you're dealing with loss. I mean, I talk about that a lot when you're dealing with loss. Yeah. You always want to remember the people you've lost, but you can't dwell on it. Yeah. And you always want to remember 
the rape of Nanking. You always want to remember machete season. You always want to remember Unit 731. You always want to remember Man Search for Meaning. You always want to remember My Lai Massacre. You want to remember those things because they're yeah. real and they happen yeah. and they can happen again if we let them. Yeah. We can't dwell on them. Because there's, there's, because you know what? We won. Good won and yeah. good will win. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, fully. You know how, okay, there's this movie called something about a centipede. A human centipede, <laughs> maybe? You ever like heard of that? literally no possible way I've seen this movie. Bro, yeah, you're right. If it's about I, a centipede. I've, I've never seen it. I've never oh, okay. seen it. I've seen the, the, the you know, what do you call oh, it? Oh, is it just like completely like psycho sick yeah. disturbing? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah some weirdo scientist yeah, yeah. guy. Yeah. So, you know, I can't help but kind of think. You know, it's when you said this isn't a movie. This is this really yeah. happened, and that's really the hard part when you really start to think about it that. Is. Like just like how we're sitting here right now. What's really what's happening. really hard is you know you you picture the mother in a gas chamber yeah. with her baby, yeah. and you you can't just picture a mother. Yeah. You can't just picture a child. You have to like picture a mother and a child that you know. You need to put that in. You need to picture someone that you because you can't you can't make that connection yeah. be, be saying a mother and a child yeah. that that doesn't that doesn't bring it together for you. Yeah. You actually have to picture someone you know, yeah. and their kid being for that's what you need to picture being forced because that's what those people were. They were people. They were people with alive and they had hopes and dreams and all those things and they got put into a gas chamber to see how long they could last without a gas mask. That's what you have to picture. Yeah, yeah, it yeah it makes the point for sure. What? Oh, here's a moral question. Okay, you know how like some of these um, doctors and uh, scientists they went on to be prosperous. Mm-hmm. You know, after you know after the the deal, and they obviously, I mean, apparently some of them did some really good work where they're getting like yeah. awards and whatnot. And you know what? Speaking of this, I was thinking about this. Because another really dark book that we covered on here was Ordinary Men, mm-hmm. which Ordinary Men talked about the the police, the, the Nazi police that went from being normal guys that were middle aged, hadn't been indoctrinated in the Nazi way of life mm-hmm. as children. They got kind of like swept along with the rest of the Germans, mm-hmm. and they ended up committing these heinous acts and and murdering thousands and thousands of of Jews. But what's interesting about that, so in that story, it's normal guys going evil. Mm. In this story, these evil guys that did evil things, they come out the other side and kind of like go normal. Right. And, and they, it's just. So did they, didn't they get kind of, they got forced into it though, right? Remember? They were like, they hey, did. hey, they you got to do this or you die. They did get, well, not really. You, if you remember in, in. Ordinary men, their commander actually in the beginning is like, "Hey, if you want to, if you don't want to do this, go home." Right? No, no. no. I mean the the Japanese oh, guys. The Japanese thirty one. Yeah. Remember? Yeah, there's, there's definitely some guys getting forced into it. Yeah. So you here. So here's the moral question: Is like, okay, of course, you know, these guys committed crimes regardless of of you know the the surrounding circumstances. They committed these crimes. It's factual, and then they kind of get away, and then they get into normal society, and they and they don't get punished, right? Perceived like. No justice, right? No justice. But, so here's the moral question. So do, is it, did they make up f- a, a, even a little bit for their crime by doing good in the future? 
even though they didn't get punished, like, did they make up for it? Or is it more of a crime because they got to do good stuff? They got to get awards and they got to be prosperous. They got to be prosperous. Yeah, and they shouldn't have. And you know what? If you look at it from the perspective of like, hey, let's look at them. So there's there's two ways I'm gonna I'm gonna stage this for you. Look at it holistically from like, okay, here's this person. Let's look at it from my from Jocko's perspective. Here's this person. They did these horrible things, but now they've kind of got back on track and they've put their life together, and and that's that's a positive thing. And they've even if you can't make up for that whole crime, at least you're chipping away at some of the horrible things you did and replacing it with something good. And, and you can see where people come to the conclusion that like, well, okay, I can kind of see how that makes sense. Yeah. That's one way of looking at it. The, For uh, others too, by the way, not just necessarily, I mean, it's easy to be like, hey, he got to do all this stuff. But if they're doing good work scientifically and for, you know, medical schools and stuff like this is obviously they're teaching yep. people. They're probably, you know, making breakthroughs and, and, you know, discoveries in the field and stuff that's going to help people in now, general, you know. Now, here's the other way I'm going to frame it for you yeah. is from the eyes of that mother who's in that gas chamber who's watching that switch get turned and she knows it's going to kill her and her child yeah. and there's no there's no redemption yeah. zero nope check good job trying to lighten up the mood over here bro yeah bro well hey man you know all right well hey let's talk some support some support we can support ourselves. We're dwelling. We're dwelling. Right, we're breaking the, our. We're, yeah. we're breaking our our own code here. We've got, we're code. dwelling. The code. Yes. All right. Well, let's talk about origin. I feel like we should talk about origin. And the first thing about origin that I will talk about is the geese, the flagship <laughs> product. Geese, all made in America, by the way. Uh, rash guards as well. This is for jujitsu, by the way, specifically, but not limited to. So, well, the geese are kind of limited, too, unless you want to make a dragon weave suit. Like, <laughs> you're the one who recommended you could this, do by judo. the way. You could do judo in a, in a... Yeah. I guess technically you could do karate, too, if you yeah, want. I technically, guess. I mean, but they're made for jujitsu. The rash guards, made for jujitsu. But you can use them for, like, cycling and bodyboarding and whatnot. Yeah. Anything that you want to um, protect yourself from rashes. Not, epi- not germ rashes. Like rash rashes. Actually, it does have uh, antimicrobial stuff in yeah, it too. That's true. So it is kind of protected from. The- anyway, originmain.com. That's where you can get this stuff. All made in America. And also, joggers. <laughs> Coming from the connoisseur of comfort himself. That's me. People are starting to comment about that. Yes. You're, you're now becoming known. Yeah. Maybe you could parlay that into like a whole thing. Yeah, like know? a whole thing. Thing. The whole thing. Yeah, you yeah, could yeah. Just have your own thing going nah, on, nah, testing wait. things for comfort <laughs> levels. <laughs> yeah, I'll establish a standard of comfort. It'll be called the connoisseur of comfort scale. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know how, like in um, temperature, there's like Kelvin. Yeah. Celsius, Fahrenheit. Yeah. I'll be that for comfort. The echo scale. Yeah. Echo scale of comfort. What would the highest level of comfort be? Would it just be one to ten? It would, no, it'd be. Uh, oh, you'd OJ. Need more. What? OJ would be the highest. What's that mean? Ranking OJ 
origin joggers. Oh, dang. Like, Look at that. Bro, I'm over here. I'm like, uh, I'm get, uh, Pete, for some reason, he's the kind of guy I like to just call. You know how you, like, you'll text someone? You know, he's Not like, really. hey, I want to. <laughs> well, you don't really, but nowadays we like to text people. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Let me, I'm not going to bother them. Yeah. I'm not going to, you know, but I don't know, for some reason I like to call Pete. So I'll call him and I'll be like, hey, when's the shorts coming out? <laughs> not first so ooh, we can, you know, because I want to wear them, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Anyway, so I'm about to call him and be like, hey, we need more colors of joggers or whatever. But here's the thing, do we? I need more colors. So I can't just be running Pete around his factory making new colors just for me personally. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I can. I don't know. <laughs> but it would help. But yeah, they're, they're real good joggers uh, and t-shirts and hoodies and whatnot. Good stuff. Made in origin. Made in America. Made in America. Made in America. Yeah. Which is good yeah. on a whole bunch of different levels. Also, we got a bunch of supplements. We got Joint Warfare. We got Krill Oil. We got Discipline, which is good to drink before you get after it mentally or physically and also we got milk yeah but back to joint warfare okay so let me get uh, i know you you're wondering how my arm is doing (laughs) i know i know man i'll let you know so i went to oregon the oregon coast last week one week forgot the joint warfare oh i just had surgery on my bicep about six yeah six weeks ago and, you know, we, you know, I would have FedExed you some, bro. I know, I know, but uh, yeah, and thank you, but you know, I didn't. How think long about did it, it take before you noticed it? Because um, I'm, I'm guessing the moral of the story is this didn't work out. Good. Yeah. So, and here's the thing: my surgeon is good. He was good. He did a good job on my arm. Reattached my bicep tendon to my bone. Drilled the hole in the bone. Boom! Stick it through. Sew it up. Gush, gush, gush. All done. Right. Um. So I take joint warfare. The thing feels good. Like I'm way ahead of schedule, you know, surprisingly, because I had it done with my other arm nine years ago, blah, blah, blah. So it's all good. I'm moving around. I'm doing like push-ups, doing stuff that no way I could have I done with, with my other arm last time. So I go to Oregon Coast. Forget the joint warfare. I attribute it to the joint warfare, how, how far ahead I am. So I forget the joint warfare. I'm in the Oregon Coast. I would say about two days. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. It didn't start like hurting mm-hmm. or going backwards, nothing like that. But it was just this weird stiffness <laughs> that sort of just occurred. Like I couldn't straighten it out right away when I wake up. Yeah. You know, I can't like, you know, I kind of got to work it out. And it slowly just started to s- just stiffen up a little more. And here's the thing. I was way less active on it too. where Because when I do like push-ups and stuff where I'm using my elbow a lot, um, it'd be kind of stiff that night, you know, then the next day you loosen it up and then it's stronger. You know, it's just one of those things like muscles, but mm-hmm. it's my joint. Um, so I wasn't doing that, that much activity and it was just general stiffness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro. I was like, well, it, I don't want to say it felt inflamed, but it felt like, you know, how, you know, how like you sprain your thumb or something like that. And it's like swollen mm. and it's like just jammed up yeah. you can use it but yeah. it's, anyway it kind of felt like that functional but not optimal functional but not not op- op- optimal and then i come back two days back on the joint warfare boom back in the game that's full on back in the game that's pretty cool isn't it? yeah it's joint for real for hell of a thing man good glucosamine chondroitin curcumin good for your brain too by the way yeah just like discipline yeah <laughs> also mulk as you were saying yeah what up with mulk mulk uh, there's First of all, milk's awesome. Second of all, what is milk? It's milk. Everyone knows that now. I think that's pretty much going to be the yep. new thing. Yep. Um, and we have peanut butter, chocolate, 
will be coming out. Uh, I want to say within okay. a week. Uh, I, I want to say within a week. You're all like, yeah. We Dave have Burke peanut butter ready. and chuck. We have peanut butter and chocolate coming in about a week. Yeah, maybe. No, no, no. It's not even a maybe. It's oh, all. straight up, yeah, one week, counting all. down the days. Okay, that's yeah. good. So, milk protein. How many? How much? How many grams of protein in milk? I think Do you know? Twenty-two per okay. scoop. So. And I heard this, I recently read, actually I didn't read it, I saw it on a video, YouTube video. I know that sounds like, oh, YouTube video, but uh-huh. I th- yeah, this one had credibility. So, <laughs> so <laughs> based on what? Uh, you know, hey. so you need, not need, but a good amount of protein is one gram they, per. They thought it was like 1.5 if you were trying to build muscle right, and all right, this right. stuff. Oh, but it's, it's changed. It's about, yeah, it's way less. According it's, to this YouTube video, random according YouTube According to this, it's like 0. 0.7 or oh, something like on. this. Point That's seven seven. I don't know. I need more than that. Yeah, bro. I'm gonna tell you right now. All right, well, there you go, Mulk. Get it, and it tastes good, real good, by the way. <laughs> it's dessert. Yeah. Anyway, is Mulk classified as a dessert? That's yeah, the question. Yes. To yes. me, currently it, it's it is. Currently, currently it's, that's you, how I classify it too. It would have to I be literally, proven out. I yeah. literally eat my dinner, and then I'm all excited to have Mulk. <laughs> <laughs> then, yes, For dessert, it is a dessert. And what, I went on a trip, and I haven't figured out how to travel with Mulk yet, which is a real bummer. Yeah. But you know it's it's scoop. You can't bring six scoops, and I'm real light traveler. Yeah. Uh, and so now when I go somewhere, and I get whatever, I'll get a good meal. I'll get a legit meal. But mm-hmm. I want a dessert. Yeah. I want milk. This is how you do yeah. it. You put it in a Ziploc bag. Yeah. Puff. Not things. in wow. your ca- not yeah. in your carry on, by the way. Well, then you got to bring a shaker. Yeah. Right? Sure. There's just multiple problems that I have. I've got to figure it out. I'll figure out a system. We'll figure it out. One thing I can say is, too, is when I when I have always, if I drank protein shakes in the past, sure. I would have to use a big shaker yeah. um, and put a lot, put probably 16 ounces of milk in oh, right, like a right, scoop, right. whatever. One thing that's good about milk, and because that's the only way you feel satisfied. With milk, you can use one of the small, little shakers. So this is a possibility. See, I'm creating ideas right now. Sure. I can bring one of the small shakers, bring a little bit of milk in it, and then just hit it up. We'll be oh, good. Yeah. Because you don't need a big, giant shaker, because you don't need to drink that much milk to feel like... It, like <laughs> like you got enough dessert. The, like you yeah, got man, enough dessert. No, no, good, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. back to the deal. Uh, immersion camp. Yep. When immersion camp's coming. August twenty sixth. August twenty sixth cool. through September second. This is weird, but we might. It looks like we might actually sell out. Like, at a certain point, how do you sell out of the camp? <laughs> we didn't think we'd be, but we. So if you want to come, get registered because we're probably going to end up. Because you can only we we have we, we we already bought more mats, double the mats that we had to muster. Dang. Yeah, okay. it's a lot of mats, but still, Dang. I mean, there's still a limit. Yeah. So if you want to come to that, come. Uh, I'll be there. Echo will be there. Dave Burke will be there. Leif Babin will be there. JP's on the fence. Dean Lister, yeah. Dean Listy, will be there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and that's good. And where. You know when you learn stuff at the, I mean, there's there, you know, there's there. You're gonna learn specific things from specific people and all that stuff. But don't look at it like this thing where you're gonna go and you're just gonna learn what they have to teach you. You know, they're yeah. gonna teach you um, spider well, guard or there's something. There's like, like this. 15 or 20 black belts there. Yes. So on top of that, if you made it your goal, if you went and you went and you said went to each one of those fifteen black belts and said, "Show me your mo- your best move." Yeah, yeah. If you did that and you walked away, that would be 
that, that would be solid. Yeah. And, but you, you, you couldn't. You, this isn't a. This isn't a. Hey, show me your move, and you spend three minutes. No, I'm talking. If you, if you spent like an hour, maybe even an hour and a half, going over it, what's your best move? Like, I bet, I could teach, certain moves for an hour and a half. Yeah. And just show every little detail. If you came to the immersion camp and that's what you did, you'd be rocking out of there. Be solid. solid. It'd be it'd be rough if everyone did that because you know oh, it'd be hard. Yeah. I don't think but, you could I don't think you could logistically do it. But I will say this that on top of what all the instructors there and not to mention just other experienced people, what they have to offer and teach you, you can come and be like, Hey, my rear naked choke needs work yeah oh yeah this is how i do it hey jocko come here this is how i do it this is all day by the way you, you have this opportunity this is how i do it and show well that's that's one thing that you could do because you can't just literally train the entire time but you can get shown moves and you can right. work moves oh yeah you can't just train because yep. you'll die <laughs> well yes you'll you'll die for sure but <laughs> if but the point is there though where you can come and you can come to immersion camp right and it's good again to learn from from everything that everyone has to teach but you can go in with specific like questions of with your game where you're still like oh for sure how am i going to get better of course my juice is going to get better in general that's good of course no but if it's like wait will my mount if escape, you if you want better. your mount escape to get better exactly, and that's what you right. focus on and then the you point. can ask actually well i'll give you this advice if you have trouble being mounted and escaping the mount a good person to ask about that is actually echo charles you have a very good uh mount escape oh yes very that's, teachable too that's one of way. your best moves is the yeah. mount escape yeah. i will say that right now authoritatively right on got a good mount escape thanks bro also Shifting gears. So yeah. Anyway, but yeah. Immersion camp, August twenty sixth to September second. Originmain.com for all that crap that we just talked about. <laughs> yeah. Originmain.com. <laughs> exactly right. Maine, like the state. M A I N E. Yeah. Originmain.com. Also, if you want to get these cool shirts that say "Discipline equals freedom," Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. So go to Jocko Store. Dot com. Um, they, anyway, that's where you can get the shirts to say discipline equals freedom, get after it. Anyway, if you want to represent with Jocko gear, it's more the philosophy. It's not Jocko gear. It doesn't really have your face on it or nothing. Oh, wait. Yes, it does have your face on it. And it says one good. Them. One of them. Maybe two, one, two. I don't know. Anyway, go there. JockoStore.com. If you like something, get something you want to represent in your town. Also. Rash guards on there. Hoodies on there. T-shirts, rash guards, truckers hats. You like the flex fit. Flex fit. I like you don't even wear hats. I don't which wear is weird because you're bald. Yeah, my head got to get a tan. Yeah, but uh, actually, I did. I went in phases, not to go too deep. You said you were my... gonna get me f- much more of these truckers hats, yeah, yeah. and you did not. Yeah, wait, F- which F- one? Does this one freedom? Yeah, or Defcore. Defcore, yeah. Uh, they're on the way. They're oh, being okay. embroidered right now. Okay. We'll Actually, I, I added like a bonus color of the... I don't support bonus colors. A bonus <laughs> color. No, but it's like a khaki, uh, like a like a brown, like a tan. Oh, it's pretty dope. Echo Charles going tactical. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Anyway, jocklesdoor.com, a lot of good stuff. Jiu-Jitsu stuff on there, women's stuff on there. Uh, hats and beanies, whatnot. Some posters on there too, by the way. Oh, you posters. didn't even know, know no, about that. You told a lot me about people, it today. Yeah, because like, a lot of people, and I mean for real, a lot of people, like a lot, a lot of people. Is that like seven? <laughs> <laughs> what are the yeah. posters of? 
uh, Discipline Equals Freedom and The Good Poster. Those are the ones that people would hit me up often, very oh often. Be like, hey, my gym, I want a poster. I want a poster for my room. I want a poster for my office. You know, 24 by 36 posters. There's two posters on there. I'll Check. make other other ones, but yeah, got some posters Check. on there. So boom, represent in your gym, in your office, in your home. I got one in my home first thing when you walk in. It's interesting. A poster of our podcast? The Good Poster. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so your face is kind of sort of there, you know, representing in my house. Thanks, Jocko, by the way. Also, a good way to support the podcast is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen to to, to podcasts. Interesting how there's so many of them out there now. There's a lot of podcasts. No, there, platforms, sorry. Yeah, there's platforms. a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of podcasts sure. and there's a lot of podcast platforms. Yes. It's the new media. It's the new media. It's the new media. It's voice, as they say. Yeah, it is voice. Yeah. It is voice. Uh, also, in addition to this podcast, mm-hmm. which is called the Jocko Podcast, there's also the Warrior Kid Podcast, mm-hmm. which is for kids, but I promise you can get a lot out of it as an adult, too. Cool thing I've been doing on that. I've done it twice. I'm going to do it more. but So it's questions for Uncle Jake is the basic premises, mm-hmm. premise of it, but now I have stories from Uncle Jake and the stories from Uncle Jake are actually from Uncle Jake's childhood right. and they kind of teach a lesson to people yeah so that's number podcast number 14 and 15 are the first two that I've started doing stories from Uncle Jake so I think people will like those yeah they're a little I bit like of them. yeah they're good some so there's kind of like character development sprinkled in there with the lesson, the, to me, the lesson. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, maybe this is intentional, but the lesson is the primary thing. Of course, and it's it's deep, same, very uh, consistent with the whole Uncle Jake yeah. way. So, simple so lesson. The the idea is I'm explaining how Uncle Jake got his values. Yeah. From experiences that he went through as a child. Yeah. And their the stories are five minutes. Eight minutes, something like that. Yeah. They're 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 pretty short stories, mm-hmm. but they're cool. Yeah, and yeah. they're enjoyable. So, yeah. Warrior Kid podcast, you can check that one out. It's it's good. And if kids, if your kids have questions for Uncle Jake, just hit hit me up on Twitter. Yeah, S- send them to Twitter, and I'll capture them. Yep, good one. Also, YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. We do have a YouTube channel if you're interested in the video version of this podcast. Or if you want to see Echo's editing skills. <laughs> sure. Or Some people say you went over the top. Sure. I'll go Warpath. over the top sometimes. So you, there's a video called Warpath. It's a, it's probably the most controversial video from my perspective because it was originally sure. made with Christmas music, mm-hmm. which I don't like Christmas music. Mm-hmm. And Echo made it with Christmas music, and he put a lot of time and effort into it. On Christmas, by So the way. if we want to talk leadership here... Like from my perspective, I knew you'd been working really hard on this thing, and then you showed it to me, and the the Christmas music kicked in, which I didn't like, <laughs> didn't match, but you know, I just had to be like, "Hey, man, it's great. I really appreciate it. You know, it's a great video." Mm-hmm. So I lied to you. Is that a lie? You didn't say great. Uh, no, you did not lie. Okay. You okay. said, and I quote. Interesting choice of music for this one. That's what you now, said. Now, I also will say that I don't a hundred percent trust myself. Like I think to myself, well, Echo really liked Christmas music, so yes. he put it in there. So that's fine. If that maybe some other people will like it too, and that's yeah. I'm not here to like dictate what people like and don't sure. like. I'm just here to tell you what I like and don't like. Yes. But then you, but then you redid the video mm-hmm. with with 
more appropriate music sure which is good sure but but then some people said you, you got crazy you went too far with, with what the, you went too for you too much stuff exploding you got too much stuff going on Ooh, there's the same amount of explosions I know but I'm saying I never really paid too much attention to what people said because I couldn't even get past the music gotcha. once I got past the music and I yeah. checked the YouTube comments <laughs> which I know right yeah you know it, I went there and people some people the majority of people yeah. said Amazing, right? The majority. Some people just threw it out there. Mm-hmm. Hey, take it easy, bro. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you can't make it. You can't. You nope. you crossed the line, yeah. right? Yes. You went over the line. Yeah. I'm. I think you were around the line. Yeah. I think you might have. You know, stepped the toe you, over you, it. Every yeah, once in a little all. bit. But yeah. but we have to find out where the line is, right? Yes. And I think you did a good job of pressing up against the line without just getting too. Well, let me uh, let me tell you the philosophy and, t- and tell me if this is a good way to approach it. So a lot of those videos, okay, so consider the first one we did. Good, right? It's a, the is that video, the first the, one the you fir- did? Okay. Good job and out of the gate. I think I might have told the, <laughs> the, the story, like there's a story behind it. But we were recording podcast. It was like number three or mm. five, one of the first initial ones. And I was like, oh, my camera was sitting over there behind, kind of behind over in the, in the corner. And if you notice on good when it shows you, you can see like it's behind like a monitor and so you can see this stuff. I just went and pressed. I kind of moved the camera a little mm-hmm. bit and I just pressed record before you said that that part. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm going to record this just in case I'll make, I'll make a video out of it or something. You're like, okay, whatever. And if you look and I watched it the other day where like Joe Rogan guys were talking about it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, let me watch it. You know, and I remember thinking and you're like reading and when you're looking up, like you're looking at me yeah, and I remember oh, you, right. you uh, this saying this stuff to me and I'm like, this is crazy. This is crazy. I'm glad I'm recording it. Yeah. Right. But that wasn't made. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to record this and we're going to do that. You know, it was just like, oh, I'm going to try to make a fun video out of it. And just put some random like graphics on there that I was just having fun doing. So these videos you do, it, it, they're kind of done out of just fun, you know? Mm-hmm. And every and once in a while, hey man, you have too much fun. You grab some <laughs> sound effects, you make the walls crumble, yeah. you do kind of stuff, you know, you have some fun with it. I mean, there's no, I guess there is kind of, they're thematic, I guess, right? <laughs> there's some theme to it, like Warpath. Like, yeah, it's kind of, for me, it's like, it's it's pretty awesome to watch. You yeah, know? it's just fun. and I can see where you're like you. I can see where you start going down the path of like just more is better. Yeah, 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 yeah. See? <laughs> see, yeah, uh, and and that's good. really what happens. And I'll catch myself doing it, and it'll take a long time. And I'm like, bro, this is not even necessary. And in fact, and some people they will bring up this point, which is a good point, where I put stuff crumbling, right? For okay, warpath. Or take warpath for example. I put the walls crumbling and Jaco and Dean rolling, and when they when they clash, like the walls come shattering down. And it's all these special effects which is like cool when you look at, but all the special effects, the sound effects and like all this stuff is like, is it kind of getting in the way of the message? Cause the message is like, you're saying something specific, you know? So it's kind of getting in the way, you know? True. So I got to watch out for that. Yeah. And I think that's a good point when people say that, I'm like, dang, that's true. And cause you don't know when you're in the mix, Most you're like, oh, that effect though. was so Most cool. Most people were stoked. Yeah, right. I, I guess. But I, yeah, I've got to watch it. I'm you're stoked. right. Uh, hey, there's also a warrior kid YouTube channel. Okay, so the reason that we separated the Warrior Kid and the Warrior Kid and the Jocko Podcast channel, channel, blah, 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 is because we know that there's things 
on this podcast and on the therefore on the YouTube channel Jocko podcast there's stuff that's inappropriate for children to listen to or watch yeah. and so this is a way to separate them so there's also a warrior kid YouTube channel that your yeah. kid can sit there and watch and and hopefully I'm not guaranteeing because I don't know how they algorithms work that pop up the next video selections mm. but hopefully your kid can watch the warrior kid videos without um, getting hooked into the unit 731 testimony yeah, about geez. vivisection yeah. so watch out for that yep true story and I th- and that one's in color too by the way yeah in color. Uncle Jake as it were <laughs> oh, yeah also good way to support yourself is to get some new gear if your workouts are boring Get some new gear from Onnit, by the way. Onnit.com slash Jocko. Good place to go. Good information, too, about starting your kettlebell workout. Browse. And I just thought of this kid yesterday. I was in the pool with my daughter. And my wife was saying, you know you know how, like, okay, so you might seem like BJ Penn do this, where he'll yeah, go yeah. in the bottom of the ocean yeah. and he'll carry that's a rock in there. That's where you Yeah, yeah, that's how. So I'm like, hey, you could grab one of those kettlebells. For sure. And, and my daughter, she's five. So she's like, yeah. I was like, yeah. Go grab the little. It's like, it's like, it's like a pixie, you know, or I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's like one of those uh, legend bells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a small one that that I got for. Her. So she grabs <laughs> it and she goes in the pool. She's like, I'm gonna. And I say, yeah. I walk to the other side and it's like deep. It's. She goes kind of into the deep section. So she goes and she's carrying it. She's doing the whole yeah, BJ yeah. Pan with the little kettlebell. She's five, by the way, under the water, and we're watching it. We're like, oh, that's cute but she starts to sort of run out of air mm-hmm. and she don't want to drop the kettlebell because yeah. it's like gonna slam in the bottom of the pool and mm-hmm. i don't know maybe she just she's five she didn't think of that you know kind mm-hmm. of thing so i see her trying to like swim with it like trying to get to the top and it's kind of deep and i was like oh i started to get worried and then she started a little bit more urgency so i had to jump in grab her echo with the save saved but she did right when i got to her she put it up on the little there's a little ledge on the other side of the pool there she managed to do it just but just barely so but i went in there when my middle daughter was probably eight eight years old, and we had a party at the beach for her birthday or whatever. <laughs> sure. And so I was dealing with, I could, as long as I could, I was dealing with the games and the whatever. And Amen. finally I'm like, you know what? That's it. We're going, we're going to get some. So we formed the party up into two teams, and we're going to compete against each other in obstacle courses and sprints and all this other stuff. Sure. And this particular location has a river, a gentle flowing tidal river that comes out. Sure. And anyways... One of the contests I had was okay. You sw- you got to swim across, and there's big rocks and stuff. And s- I go, you got to swim across the river and come back, and whoever brings back the biggest rock is the winner. Mm. So my middle daughter is t- tough. She's tough and she's strong. Yeah. She's a wrestler and gymnastics and all that crap, and, well not crap, but all that stuff. You know, like she's just stuff. just um, she's a beast, and she's mentally like. Um, I don't want to use the term psycho, but like she's real determined about stuff yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, this is when she's a, a little kid, you know, and so go go across the river and whoever brings back the biggest rock wins. Mm. So she goes, so they all go across and kids are grabbing rocks that are size of, let's say, let's say a softball, mm. you know, maybe a softball. What's in between the size of a softball and a soccer ball? Uh... I don't know. Some so something. Okay, loaf of bread. Sure. Like like maybe a small loaf of bread. That's the max, right? Yeah. That any of these kids are grabbing. 
my daughter grabs something that's like the size of a like a legit watermelon yeah, like yeah, a yeah, big yeah. giant 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 yeah. rock like two hand oh two hand rock rock giant rock like yeah. four or five loaves of bread just a big big giant rock yeah. and I'm watching her and I'm thinking well she's just gonna sink to the bottom and she'll have to let it go and she'll have to go back and get a smaller one maybe she can still do okay yeah. so she's come and the river has weird contours on the bottom you know you're you're you can walk a little while and then it just drops super deep right, right. and you just got to make it yeah <laughs> so I'm watching her and she's she's it's hard for her to even carry it and, and she carries she gets to that deep section just drops down goes under and I'm waiting for her to pop up but she doesn't pop up and I'm waiting for her to pop up and she doesn't pop up and I'm waiting for her to pop up and she doesn't pop up and then I see like an air bubble come up <laughs> and I'm like oh dang <laughs> yeah. I, I, but the air bubble has progressed so now I'm watching the air bubbles like progress yeah they're coming closer to the other side and oh. <laughs> and, and then it starts to come up and sure enough out she comes like a like a beast she's holding the rock <laughs> and she comes up out of the water ah, powered through it powered through that and oh. brings the rock up drops it at my feet and i was like victory <laughs> is yours bro that's that's actually pretty powerful because bro when you're i mean unless she was like depends on her mindset so her she was probably like i'm not gonna let this rock defeat me i'm gonna bring it to the other side and that's kind of the mindset i'm not gonna drop it for that reason I think my daughter it was like I can't drop this thing, yeah. so I'm stuck with it, you know, yeah. kind of thing. That's what you know. So she started. You could tell she was a little bit going little bit into panicky. panic mode. Yeah, yeah. So it's a whole different scenario, technically, yeah. <laughs> but that's pretty savage, though. Do you think that I should? Because she's probably she's scared. She even said like later, like, "Oh, that was like scary and all this stuff." I should probably make her do it again, huh? Yeah. Yep. Like not make her like do it, but Closely like maybe monitor. jump in with yeah, her. My daughter, my youngest daughter, just did the big cliff jump yesterday and long swim in the yeah. ocean, open, open ocean waters. Okay. You know, you got to get them. And she was, I was, I thought she was going to be panicky. Yeah, because it's big drop and it's ocean and whatever, and it's some wave action. Yeah, right? but she was. I said, oh, "Are you good?" And she said, "Yeah." Did you like, do it too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that they usually. I mean, unless you got traumatized by it or something like this. Yeah. Where, bro, my, it's weird. Come from Hawaii, you jump off everything. Yeah. In the water, go, go down. That's the right. <laughs> yeah, you see, you know about that. One. <laughs> so we have this ledge, you know that you know you saw it, and it's not that high, but yeah. for a one-year-old, it's pretty high. It's pretty good. But my boy and my daughter, when she was one, two, they just jump off. We yep. catch them. <clears throat> they can't swim yet, you know, and my son. He jumped off a few times and was all good. But then one time he went to walk and there was this little, just a slight little dip. And, you know, when you're one, you, you know, you're new to walk. He slipped, he tripped and he fell in. I caught him, but he full on like hit yeah, his side trauma. on the edge of the thing. And he's and he's crying. He's one and just, just over one, maybe like 13, 14. Made him do it again. He didn't want to do it yeah. though. But so I didn't like push him again. I just kept like, hey, do it. I got you. I got you. And he'd be like, eh, you know, crying or whatever. And then. You know, my daughter would do it. I would do it. Then he finally, like, reluctantly did it, and we cheered for him, and now he's all good. Good to he, go. He, like, forces himself. He makes me catch him now. Jeez. He's, like, almost two. Yeah. Anyway. But, yeah, the, the point is you make him do it again, right? Yeah, but you're very accurate in saying don't traumatize him. Yeah. Don't be like, you're going right now. Yeah, kid, yeah, and you hawk him it. off. Now it's just getting worse. You're yeah. not, you're not, you, you know, it's like the, hey, do it. 
you should do it. Oh, you want to take a little break? That's okay. But you know, you should definitely do this. It's, it's you've already done it before. Yeah. You don't want to traumatize them worse. Yeah, yeah. That's not going to work out good. Yeah, especially with the Waterman, because it's like it's one minute, it's all fun and games, and literally your mind can flip to you know, like I'm about to die. I used to say this. So in the '90s, in the SEAL teams, when there was no war going on, and whatever you'd go out and you do training. There was times I, I would always tell guys when you're working in the water. It's a real-world mission yeah. Like we didn't know what a real-world mission. I've right, never right, been right. on one, but you, the, the, the fact of the matter is when you're working with the water It's a real-world mission because yeah. if you screw something up you can easily die yeah. easily yeah, if you're not careful one up one down Just gonna throw that out there if you're doing any kind of this training any training in the water one person stays up on the surface the other person you know and, and be a lifeguard you yeah. don't do simultaneous training in the water. So just throwing that out there. There's a little safety note for everyone. Yes. One up, one down. That's the rule. Yes. And especially if you're carrying the kettlebells from on it or otherwise at the bottom of the pool, the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of a reservoir, bottom of any body of water. Yep. One up, one down. One up, one down is the rule. Nonetheless. So that's how we utilize the pixie. I think it's called pixie. It's one of the legend bells. Anyway, if... I guess that doesn't really have much to do with what on it offers, but it just I just thought of that because it just happened. Hey. Nonetheless, <clears throat> hey, it was represented in the story. Boom. Indeed. Good. Indeed. Anyway, if you want cool uh, fitness stuff, onit.com slash Jocko. A lot of good information on there. Some socks on there. I mentioned the socks. Like it's like this big deal. And here's the thing. It is. On it socks. I was at TSA the other day. I had to stun on them with my on it socks. You got issues. You know, they were looking, they're like, those are dope socks. Anyway, on it.com slash Jocko is a good spot. Uh, Psychological Warfare is an album that you can get where I talk about stuff of overcoming when you have little moments of weakness. And I'm going to make another one. Good. I'm going to make another one. Got it. I'm plotting on it. Good. It looks like it's going to be called All Your Excuses Are Lies. Yes. Good good title. Uh, You get that iTunes, Google Play, wherever MP3s are sold. Yeah, man. Amazon and also Jocko white tea People have now seen that we have cans of Jocko white tea. Where do you get them? You get them on Amazon if you want them. It tastes awesome You can get the dry tea on there, too, which you add water to and then you brew it and then If either one you're gonna get an 8,000 pound deadlift, so that's cool do that got some books way the warrior kid and Mark's mission two books Which one do you like better? Do I like better? Yeah. Uh, I can't say because the first one, the OG, the original one from Wimpy to Warrior, will always have. That's the one that establishes establishes the ethos yeah. in my house anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I I can't say. I think they're both outstanding, but it's good how you evolve the issues. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> like it's like boom, basic. Think inch about issues. how many. People are like, oh, you're going to write more? Well, yeah. Well, what are you going to write about? Think about all the issues you have as a human being, and then yeah. think about all the issues you had as a kid. Yeah. Like, we're going to cover all those. Yeah, that's like 10 books right there. Uncle Jake's got some help for you. Yeah. So, yeah, Way of the Warrior Kid books. They The one thing that's cool is people, as a parent, you're like, man, how do I get my kid to, yeah. even something as stupid as cleaning your room, right? How do you get your kid to clean your room? Have not read this book? Yeah. I got pictures. I got I just got a picture on Twitter the other day. Kids got a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. And the dad's <laughs> pumped, right? Yeah, the yeah, dad's pumped. He's like, yeah. look at this. It's like, that's a real thing. Even as, um, like, okay, so kids can read the book, of course. But I read it to my daughter, who was four at the time. Four, yeah. 
So I'm reading it and it's answering a bunch of questions I have. <laughs> so it's like, hey, you know, my kid, you know, my daughter's like, okay, okay. Oh, you mean parenting questions? Yes, exactly. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. and it's just little stuff, little stuff sometimes you won't even really think of. So, like, okay, for example, and I said, I mentioned this one before, but it's a huge deal that I still use it. Like, it's on the front of my mind every single time. So, you know how, like, you'll have a kid and they'll be, like, real good at something just kind of right away? Yeah. Maybe your kid's more athletic or yeah, something. Maybe yeah. they're bigger or taller or whatever. So they kind of win real quick, you yeah. know? So when they run into a situation where they're in an activity that re- actually requires practice, mm-hmm. like a cartwheel mm-hmm. or something like this. And so my daughter, she's big. She's an athletic little girl. Way bigger. She's like, you know, and so she has this friend, same age. She's like a week, either older or younger, I forget. But they're the same age. And she can do a cartwheel and just fly through cartwheels, one-handed cartwheels, all this stuff. This other girl can't. She's way smaller, you know, way whatever. So my daughter, she doesn't like that. Not the fact that the girl can, but just she can. Yeah. You know, so she tries to do Which it, and sort it's of like, leads to that she can. <laughs> it kind of starts. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's a whole thing. Yeah. So it's it's very upsetting. So Uncle Jake said something in the first one that this will always st- stick with me. When she complains to me about it, she can't do a cartwheel and how Malia can do a cartwheel, but I can't, and all this stuff. I say, and I quote, Uncle Jake. How do you expect to be good at something when you've never practiced? Boom. Just like the times table. Yeah, Are you going to be good at times table when you've <clears throat> never studied? You know? and you're it not makes born it, knowing how to do a cartwheel. <laughs> you're not born knowing how to do a cartwheel. Just like how you know our other neighbor can play the guitar. You know how much practice you know, kind of thing. And it's crazy because just that simple line right there. Like she's four and she understands, you know? She's like practicing, practicing. Anyway, that's how. Go. That's how that book is, man. Warrior Kid books. There's two of them. Way of the Warrior Kid and Mark's Mission. You can get those. You can also get Discipline Equals Freedom. The Field Manual. Yeah. Field Manual. How to get after it. Yeah. Simple as that. The audio version of that is not on Audible. It's on iTunes, Amazon Music, all that stuff. Also, Extreme Ownership. Extreme Ownership is on Audible. And I just looked. It was number two on Apple Audible books, whatever that's called, Apple iBooks or something. Number two, right now, the book's been out for almost three years. What is Apple iBooks? It's where you can get books for your audio books. Yeah, audio books. Yeah, oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Uh, oh, speaking of books, by the way, it, if you want to get this one, oh, Unit, unit Seven Thirty One Testimony. Yeah, I'm putting it on the website. and Unit Seven Thirty One, just that. Yeah. Oh, and the, the subtitle is Japan's Secret Biological Warfare in World War Two. Yeah. Dark book, but see, really, see strongly. I feel strongly that that's like one you kind of want to read yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, it's you, crazy, but yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna put them on our website, JockoPodcast.com. You know, s- someone just hit me up on Twitter that he's like, "Hey, we we had a long road trip for Fourth of July. My wife, me, and my kids, aged you know thirteen, whatever, listened to one twenty one, one twenty two, and one twenty three. Yeah." That's real significant. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know if I want to say it. Family time, but like that's a real. The compared to the other things that you could be doing in the car, right. that's a real good thing to do in your car. Introduce your kids to a bit of history, a bit of human nature, a bit of the darkness of the world, a bit of overcoming that darkness. That, that's pretty cool. These are the kind of books. Well, so that's that. But yeah, these books. You're, you're saying these are the kind of books you kind of want to have. It's I think it's important to. I think it's important to know what's going on and know what has happened in the world. As I said, yeah, you want to check that out. 
Yeah. Hey. Uh, but yeah, I'll put it on the on the website. That's the point. I'm gonna have a uh, or we have it on the page. Books from the episodes, all by episode. So this one's from obviously 133. Yep. Yeah. And 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 also you've got on the website because extreme ownership, which I talked about, is the first book I wrote with my brother Leif Babin, and we wrote another book, which is called the Dichotomy of Leadership. That's also on the website, right? Yes. Yeah. Front and page, boom. Yeah. So that's that's coming out September 25th. If you want to get that on the first edition, yeah, man. You can go for the third edition. No if one you cares, want. though. Yeah, yeah. What's the difference between third and third edition and seventh edition? Nothing. It's yeah. The same. What's the difference between first edition and second edition? Well, it's you are in the game. Yeah, so it's kind of <laughs> like the difference. If you take, if you run a race, or if you're recognized, not recognized, but let's say you run a race, you first, okay, first place guy, second place guy, third place guy, you all get medals. What is what is the medal made out of? We'll just say metal, for lack of a better term. What's the difference between the metal? Gold. No, nothing. Only the color. Psychological. Oh. It's all made of the same stuff. Bad analogy. Yeah, I don't even follow it, but that's all right, cool. First edition, that's the point. That's Boom, what we're, get it, that's get what on we're it. talking about first. here. Hey, and also, if you want to bring myself, Leif Babin, JP Donnell, Dave Burke, we got Mike Sorelli, we got Flynn Cochran now on the team. If you need help with leadership in your organization, whatever kind of organization it is, you can hit us up. Echelon Front is the name of the company. We solve problems through leadership. Echelonfront.com. Get some. We have one more muster in 2018. It is in San Francisco. It's October 17th and 18th. It's going to sell out. I was. I just got an update from Jamie today, the ops director at Echelon Front, and sure. she was saying that we're going to sell out a lot sooner than we thought. So if you want to come up there at extremeownership.com, the muster. I'll po- I, I got a video to post about that too. I haven't posted it yet, but yeah, that's that. Also, on top of the muster, we have the roll call, which is for police, military, law enforcement, firefighters, first responders. It's for people in uniform. That's happening September 21st in Dallas, Texas. It's only one day. So you don't have to miss too much work. It's a lower price point, so you can afford it or you can get your organization to pay for it a little easier. Come on down to that. It's a great program. I just finished putting together the agenda yesterday, and so come on down. Until then, if you want to kick it with us just a little bit more virtually, until we are together live, which we will be, we'll be together live at the muster in San Francisco or at the roll call in Dallas, Texas or at the immersion camp in Maine. We'll see you at one of those. But until then, if you do want to kick it with us, we will be on the interwebs on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Dash Face at Bookie Echo is at Echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink. And of course, to all the military personnel that are listening. You provide the freedom that allows us to do what we do every day. You also hold the line against the evil that we talked about today. So thank you 
to police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, border patrol, other first responders. You actually provide the safety that allows us to do what we do every day. So thanks to you and to the families that support all those that serve. Thank you for supporting those families that serve. And to everyone else that's listening, thank you for listening. Thanks for supporting. I know it was a rough listen. I know it is. It's rough for me to read. It's rough for me to talk about. But it's also reality. And if you don't face reality, you can't fix it. If you don't face your past, you can't learn from it. So what you have to do is you have to face them. You have to face what scares you. You have to face what bothers you. You have to face your weaknesses and face your fears and face your own darkness. Face them. Own them and overcome them all by stepping up and getting after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko, out.